Tune out with Nevia by Moen, the spa shower that offers double the coverage using about half the water, making it look, sound, and feel totally different. Learn more at moen.com slash Nebbia. Executive Vice President of World Championship Wrestling, Jim Hearn and the Championship Committee have stripped Nature Boy Rick Blair of his WCW We have something in the World Wrestling Federation known as credibility. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Undertaker, you are a murderer! You are a murderer, Undertaker! You're a goddamn murderer! Vince McMahon's dead, but the fact is, it's it's gonna get taken over by his idiotic daughter and his doofus son-in-law and the rest of his stupid family. Many hotel rooms, I have just sat there, and uh, I call it the silent scream. It's just, uh, I don't know why, you just sit there and tears will just come down, and you just sit there, and fucking hours, man. And you've got that little look on your face like, yeah, I'm, geez, I'm, Vince, how none, can you possibly none, say that? Well, but none whatsoever. I mean, they wrestled for you. They, they were part of they, your organization. They worked a couple of hundred nights a year for you. They oh lived God. this oh, lifestyle. Oh, oh, my God. You can't. What is the one quality that you possess that makes you think that you can walk out here and come into the ring and face the very best in the business? Ruthless aggression. Oh! Save me. Save me. Oh, yes. You can save me now. Paul. It has to be this way. I have no other choice. Rest in peace. What are you doing? What are you doing? You can't do that! No! No! Paul, I have no other choice. Rest in peace. No, oh my God. No, no, no. no. Undertaker. No. What are you doing? What the hell is he doing? What? The Superman. Undertaker pulled the lever. What? What are you doing? Oh my God. Hey, what's up, everyone? Don Tony here. I want to thank you for listening. As always, this is episode 26 of This Week in Wrestling History. 
And I, I got to just really tell you how much I appreciate all of the feedback and suggestions that you've been sending in for this show. It's been massive. But what I love about it is none of the feedback is negative. But what I notice is that a lot of you tell me that you like aspects of the show, but there are other aspects that you absolutely love. And if you go back to episode one, which was week one of this year in wrestling history, um, and you listen to that compared to now, the show is completely transformed. It's amazing how it has changed in such a short amount of time. It's all because of your feedback. And I am really looking forward to this week's episode. And you think because it's the 4th of July holiday coming up, families are on vacation, kids are out of the school, they're doing summer jobs, that maybe wrestling takes a little step back as far as putting out the high-profile matches and storylines and segments. No, not in the least. And in fact, if you actually listen to all of the episodes coming up to now, this arguably may be one of the biggest, it's it's definitely in the top five as far as the biggest weeks that have taken place in the year so far. And there's so many moments that unfortunately don't make these episodes. You know, right now these episodes have been averaging three to three and a half hours. And I've been trying to figure out ways to trim it down a little bit. And there are so many moments that I have to really decide, do I put this on? Do I put this on? Do I play this match? Do I play a couple of minutes of highlights? Case in point, there's two things later on that I trimmed down a little bit, but the commentary especially was so epic. Like I had a very difficult time even trimming a couple of minutes off. So this is going to be a really fun episode. And for date purposes, this week we cover the period of June 26th through July 2nd. So let's start it off. And I got to mention this because it just amazed me that this match is available online to view. 1961. At that time, this match was labeled as the match of the century. Best two out of three falls, Chicago, Illinois, at Comiskey Park. 38,622 fans in attendance. Not only did it draw $150,000 in revenue that night, if you can translate that to how much it would be in this age, that's almost a million and a half dollars. And everybody remembers that night for one particular match. Buddy Rogers defeating Pat O'Connor. Best two out of three falls match. He won two to one. The match is over 25 minutes in length. And again, you go online, YouTube for the most part, you could actually watch this match. It's phenomenal how many matches are available now that weren't available years ago, you know, a couple of years ago. And when I get into the next one, that this one especially, 1976, Antonio Inoki versus Muhammad Ali, the wrestler versus the boxer. You know, everybody these days remember Big Show versus Mayweather. And there's been a couple of other little uh, less memorable ones. Didn't we have Matt Hardy versus Amanda Holyfield, which really wasn't bad. But it all started 1976 for the most part. Antonio Inoki versus Muhammad Ali as far as high-profile wrestler versus boxer matches. And I tell you, it's interesting 
to see how much bullshit gets generated over the years. And it's sad because I've said before, there's about 12 particular websites where I gather all my history from. And it's my starting point. And then once I get pretty much an overall synopsis of what I'm going to cover, then I do my own research. I watch footage. I check out information, things that I'm not you know, completely convinced on as far as claims. I'll look into it further and I'll check things out. And a great example is this match. Because for so many years, this was not available online to watch. And now I, some boxing website put it up. And how many times have you read and heard people over the years talk about how the match was so goddamn boring that the fans in Japan threw trash at the wrestler, threw trash at the boxer, threw trash that it took a day and a half to clean, that they flooded the ring with trash because of how boring the match was. And you watch it online and... I don't see no trash at all. I don't see no God. And, you know, you'd think on the surface, you know, Tokyo, Japan, you know, Japanese fans are pretty respectful. You don't normally see them throwing garbage in the ring and at wrestlers. You know, if you would have told me Puerto Rico and some other areas which are notorious for that, that's different. But it, it's sad to see how many people that actually cover history. You know, me doing this little podcast thing, as far as covering history, you think, I'm not the first one that's ever done this. And there are a lot of them out there. And it's fucking sad to see people that specialize in this stuff and they do no research. And I'm listening to people during the week, and I'm not going to say specifically, but I listen to two different shows. And they're talking about how fans threw garbage at Ali. And one of them even said that he got hit. And I'm looking at the footage and I'm pausing it and I'm doing it in slow-mo and I'm looking at it on a, a you know good monitor giant monitor and I'm like where the fuck is the garbage so believe me when you read certain things in history don't believe everything you read and I know that goes with anything online but this match especially I mean it's just unbelievable how inaccurate some of it was and I tell you you watch the match sure it's boring but there are moments where Ali is taunting Inoki, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, you could see that he was having a good time. And, yeah, there's been some, you know, claims over the years that, you know, he had problems with his legs and there was some complications from the bout. Look, some people bring up the common sense point. Muhammad Ali had boxing gloves on. What did people expect? Him to stop body slamming Inoki? He had gloves on. So what was he going to do? Anoki's kicking. He's running away. He's dodging. And it, come on. The match was not um, destined to be a good one. And it was what it was. But it was one of the biggest covered wrestling matches in history up until that point. So there you go. Now we go to 1982. And I apologize about the audio quality of your, what you're about to hear. And I know a lot of you out there are going to say to me, no, the audio was fine. Me, I try to get this audio as pristine and as perfect as possible for your enjoyment. 
And unfortunately, some of the old WWF house shows, the audio quality is not that great. And the reason why I bring it up is because we're going to cover now this week in history, 1982. At the time, one of my favorite wrestling matches of all time. It is still a lot of fun to watch. I thought it told a wonderful story, and I even had a little trivia contest online a couple of days ago. To And I all I did was put a photo of Jimmy Snooker standing atop the steel cage at Madison Square Garden. And I said, tell me what award this match won. Didn't say nothing else. And yes, someone got it right. Pro Wrestling Illustrated, I still remember it. I still remember opening that magazine and I remember the article being either the last page of the magazine or the second or third page to last. It's weird how you remember little things like that. I haven't seen this magazine since I was a kid. But Bob Backlund versus Jimmy Snuka in the cage at Madison Square Garden, Pro Wrestling Illustrated gave it the award as the match of the year. And I know some people have debated over the years that there's a couple other matches in 82 involving Ric Flair that should have won it. But I think what they failed to realize is that two of the matches that people bring up took place in December of 82. Pro Wrestling Illustrated already had this magazine written up, I think, by November. So that's why it didn't make the cut. But just that epic moment of Snooker, you know, staying on top of the cage. And when he leaped off onto Backlund, he missed. And Backlund, you know, escaped the cage. He, he got up and he was able to escape. But the thing is, is the infamous photo that everybody remembers. From the most part, I've only seen it in black and white. You know, if you watch the video, the camera angle is different. So, Backlund, you look at the synopsis for today's show, you'll see what I'm talking about. But I'm going to play you highlights of the match. It's going to sound like the match is in its entirety, but I actually trimmed down several minutes and I made it seamless. So, you know, it would really keep everything compact and to the point. And yes, again, the audio quality is not the greatest. But the reason why I am decided to air this audio also is for people that are younger fans that don't understand the magnitude of the popularity that Bob Backlund had during his championship reign. I have talked about it. I've been doing this going back to 97 with Wrestling Hotlines. And I remember seeing Backlund as a kid in different arenas. And this guy, it was deafening how over this guy was. And it's cool to listen back at matches or watch it and you just hear the crowd, the, the audio, you know, the, the level, the decibels, all of a sudden increase to the point. And sure, the crowd went nuts when Snooker went to the top of the cage because that's something you really ever seen before at the time. But when you hear this and you hear the, the level of loud from the fans, even when Backlund wins, it's, it's amazing at that time. Um, so when I, and plus when I hear some legends try to shit on Bob Backlund's championship run, look, I have always said that he's one of my favorites growing up as a kid. His promo ability was terrible for the most part. Very soft-spoken, which is definitely a plus for him, but, you know, he would pause, he would have a brain cramp, he would kind of stutter a little, and he would, you know, incomplete sentences, and very, very mundane, very bland but he was phenomenal in the ring. And when I hear legends besmirch his championship run, as a wrestling fan, they don't know what they're talking about. You know, 
maybe it's, there's some jealousy because they weren't in that position. But here you go, 1982, Bob Backlund versus Jimmy Snuka for the WWF heavyweight title inside a steel cage. Ladies and gentlemen, we are about to have this evening's main event. This is a return bout for the World Wrestling Federation Championship to be held inside of this steel cage. The rules are simple. The only way to win the bout is through exiting through the door. In the ring at this time, from Princeton, Minnesota, weighing 234 pounds, the World Wrestling Federation champion, Bob Becklund. His opponent will be entering the arena shortly, accompanied by his manager, Captain Louis Albano, the challenger from the Fiji Islands, weighing 250 pounds, Jimmy Superfly Snooker. So Bob Backlund, like an animal in there, a caged animal, waiting for the presence of the Super Bears. A look at Mr. Snooker. Truly a phenomenal athlete. And Bob Backlund ushering Snooker. Pleading for him to come on in. Now Mr. Snooker inches his way toward the door. Look at the tremendous shoulder development. Snooker. Looking back. Sensing this could be his moment of glory. Referee imploring Snooker to step through the door and then to lock the door behind him. Snooker slowly now on the apron. And there's a look at the champion in the background. Snooker, I do not believe, is that all that all that reluctant to enter the cage. He's just playing a game with Bob Backlund's mind. Ash Booker, he's bringing him in the hard way. Four to the head. This is a no holes barred encounter. Bob Blackman's been waiting for this moment for some time. He's going to have to wear Snooker down before he makes an attempt to leave the ring. To do otherwise would no doubt be sure defeat. Turning your back on an opponent. Snooker and Backlund swinging out. Backlund has the advantage leverage-wise. Hurt his hand. Headbutt by Packer. Sort of a roundhouse right now. Snooker going, going to the door. 
he's not going anywhere. Look a lightning like quick. Fingertip chop to the throat area. Now to the forehead. Good foot by Smucka. Backlund rammed into the cage. That does not figure to be a very pretty thing to see. thrown into that mesh, it'll really just rip the flesh right off the bone. So, each man has two opponents in this match, really. One being, of course, his position, and the other being the cage itself. Look up. Another thrust to the head. Blocked by Backlund. Roundhouse right to that. That slow individual in wrestling today has been such a thorn in the side of Bob Backlund as the superfly. Now Backlund on his knees going for the door. Look at right behind him. Backlund reversing it. Reversed it and slipped Slicker in, and it looked like Slicker hit it head first. Oh my, did he ever? He's a mess. Slicker! Over the line! Oh my! A super fly, a bloody mess. We said before, those of you that have made the mark. Not one of the matches. Watch this match. It is not a pretty thing. Oh, my God. Look at his beating so usually. Look at getting the beating of his life.
not sensing victory at this moment. Backlund is pretty much out of it, and Snuka backing off to the rope. Dropping the elbow on Backlund. A pin will get you nowhere in this kind of match. It's simply the man out of the door first. Snuka, a man with amazing reserve. He has to be hurt, hurt badly. He could care if he left a quart of blood in there tonight as long as he walks out with the World Wrestling Federation title. Tremendous suplex. Nineteen eighty-six, Nick Bockwinkle defeats Stan Hansen by forfeit for the AWA World Heavyweight Championship. And I tell you, you know, I originally was going to play some uh, audio interview clips from Stan Hansen talking about this, but we've all seen the shoot interviews. We've seen the interviews he's done with JBL and others. You know, him keeping the AWA title and then running it over with his truck and sending it back with tire tracks on it. Yes, this was the, the moment in time. So it was this week in 86 that Bachwinkle was supposed to wrestle Stan Hansen. Now, there's some conflicting information online over the years because Stan Hansen was already advertised to wrestle Giant Baba um, in Japan for the title. But the thing is, is that Stan Hansen has claimed over the years that he was in the arena in the United States to wrestle Nick Bockwinkle this night, this week in wrestling history. And they had some type of a falling out and he walked out and he did not wrestle the match. So, you know, in AWA fashion, they handed the title over to Nick Bockwinkle. And here is just a little audio interview that was done the night that Stan Hansen was uh, stripped of the title and awarded to Nick Bockwinkle. The most unusual development in the history of professional wrestling. Stan the Lariat Hansen in the building, apparently ready to defend the heavyweight championship against this man, Nick Bockwinkle. He then left the building. Promoter Gene Reed notified the president of the AWA, Stanley Blackburn, of the development. The decision was made that if Stan the Lariat Hansen did not return within a given period of time, Nick Bockwinkle would become the AWA heavyweight champion for the fourth time. 
Dan Hansen did not return. Congratulations, Nick Bockwinkle. You got what you've long wanted for the fourth time, the championship. I guess I'm going to put it simply this way. I feel bad that I did not pin the man, that I did not win the match in a battle in the ring. But you know, if you can chase the enemy off the battlefield, if he leaves and he goes home, now, I have no idea what's in Stan Hansen's mind, but at 300 pounds and a big ruffian from the Pampas of West Texas, you've blown your mouth off real big, hard, and heavy. But what it really comes down to, when it came time to put up or shut up, I guess you shut up. I don't know how long and how big the tail is on a big West Texas bull, but right now it's down someplace between his legs. One of the rumors being that he got injured maybe a little bit in his match a night before, with uh, Jerry Blackwell. Well, I don't give any uh, credence or any give you any room for that. I'm thrilled to death to become the heavyweight champion for the fourth time. And if you think I don't have all the enthusiasm in the world, I do. Now, I've wanted this very badly. I felt I got robbed out of it two years ago. And they say what goes around comes around. So I must be a pretty decent dude for this thing to take place and this go down the way it did. Why Stan Hansen didn't come back, that's his baby. But I know one thing, you didn't show Stan Hansen. I was here. I was ready to go. Obviously, you're going to have to change your entire booking schedule, the demands on the championship. Suddenly, now the pressure on Nick Bockwinkle again. Well, yes, it will be. But Stanley Blackburn, because this is so very unusual, needless to say, uh, he's going to have to take and uh, make a lot of decisions. There's going to be a lot of unusual things taking place. I can only say one thing. I'm happy as hell. I don't blame you, Nick Bockwinkle, the AWA Heavyweight Champion for the fourth time again. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. All right, I've never seen the belt change like that before, and you probably haven't either. I can't remember seeing it change like that before. By the way, when you hear Larry Nelson say, I've never seen the belt change like that before, nah, that's not true. Nick Bockwinkle was awarded the title couple of years earlier early 80s so it's not the first time that this has happened and i've talked over the years my absolute disgust for stanley blackburn and yes i know a lot of it is storyline but man i fucking just hated that guy i hated him i hated jack tunney they had these fucking officials well we'll, we'll wait till we get to jim hurd later on I mean, you had a series of matarazzas going back then in fact you know what let's get into jim hurd right now we fast forward to 1991. Ric Flair leaves WCW. Not only does he leave, he has the NWA title. He did not give it back to WCW because they didn't refund him his deposit. I mean, the interviews are legendary. He has told the stories repeatedly on WWE interviews over the years. And who could ever forget when he showed up on WWF television, Bobby Heenan introduced him, the real world champion. Then we talked about it recently on how they were forced to pixelate the belt because of fear of lawsuits and just things that went down at that time. It all started this week back in 1991. What's interesting is that if you actually do some searching online, which I did and I always do for these shows, a lot of mainstream newspapers covered this. And I'm not just talking North Carolina or the southern areas. I saw an article in a New York paper. I saw an article, I think, in the Baltimore Sun. They were, and this is 1991. Yes, we're already into WrestleManias. And yes, wrestling has already had its boom from the 80s. But to see 
just the the article of Ric Flair leaving WCW because of a contract dispute and seeing mainstream papers covering this was interesting. But as you heard the teaser a little bit earlier, I'm going to play an extended clip of it now, along with a couple of other clips as well. What you're going to get right now is the house show. I think it was the Meadowlands. I think it was the Meadowlands. I'm not sure. I know it was in Jersey. But they're the ones that announced to the crowd that Ric Flair was stripped of the title and you could hear the crowd just just in total disgust and booing. And this was only a couple of days before the Great American Bash. In fact, if you look at the synopsis for this week's episode, I have up there the original advertisement that Ric Flair was supposed to defend the title against Lex Luger. And because of the contract issue, uh, they had to change it. It was Lex Luger versus Barry Windham. The fans were not happy. So right now you're actually going to get four clips. First clip is how it went down in Jersey when they announced that Ric Flair was stripped of the title and he wasn't going to appear. Second clip was Jim Hurd's announcement. I think it was WCW Saturday night, like a couple of days later. Third one is Ric Flair talking briefly with Steve Austin for like two or three minutes as far as what went down at that time. And the last clip is... Uh, Melter site, Observer. It might have even been Brian Alvarez. I'm not sure. But Jim Hurd did an interview for uh, Observer, live audio wrestling, back in the early 2000s. So you will actually hear a couple of minutes of Jim Hurd talking about the time when this all went down. So four clips, all reflecting what went down this week in 1991. Enjoy. fans, Jim Hurd, Executive Vice President of World Championship Wrestling, with a very important statement for you fans. 
World Championship Wrestling is saddened to report that after extensive negotiations with Nature Boy Ric Flair, stretching over the course of nearly one year, the parties have been unable to arrive at a mutually satisfactory contractual relationship. As a result, the WCW board has decided that the best course of action for WCW and its fans is to declare the World Championship title vacant and to determine a new champion at the Great American Bash this Sunday in Baltimore. Lex Luger, the number one contender and current United States champion, will remain on the title card at the bash. His opponent, as determined by the WCW board, is one you've been waiting for and asking for for a long time. It's Barry Windham versus Lex Luger at the Great American Bash in Baltimore. On a personal note, I'd like to take this opportunity to extend my best wishes to Ric Flair and wish him the best in the future. He is a great champion. So what did you think when you first came into WWE? Uh, because it was Oh, I was excited. I was excited, man. I had so many friends up there. I was tired of Jim Hurd, but I'd cut my hair. Do you know, that caused me more anxiety. He, would, he wanted to call me Spartacus. He, he, wanted, he wanted me to wear a diamond earring and call me Spartacus. After years of being Nature Boy, Rick Flair, I they want to call you Spartacus. Kevin Sullivan said, why don't we change Mickey Mantle's number two? Hurd said, you don't understand the business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, you didn't know that? He wanted to call me Spartacus. I went in the bathroom. I said, do I look at Damn, nobody knew me. And said, hey, wait, H, woo, 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 nothing, zero. <laughs> yeah. I cut my hair, I mean, all that hair. Was that an identity crisis? Yes, yes. Did that mess with your head? Yes. On a performance level? Yes. And on a performance level, no. Yeah. No, because the minute I got to WWE, I mean, I, I wasn't concerned. I had no idea they were going to make me the champion. He, he didn't, there was no guarantees with him. He, he just told me I'm going to make you more money and shook my hand. Yes. And then, and then the sad thing is, Iron was leaving and I was coming. So we missed that time together. And... Uh, but he understood why I couldn't stay there anymore. Herd's crazy. But did you feel like you, you were able to go as far out uh, in your first run in WWE than you had been in the, you know, with the Crockett's? Because I didn't, I didn't think that it was quite the same. No, it wasn't because it, number one, the companies run differently. Yeah. Number two, but if you think about it, at the end of the day, while I was here, I wrestled Hogan, Brett, Undertaker, and. Because I got to wrestle Undertaker in house shows, and I wrestled Savage. That's a lot to hell of a lineup to, to work with, right? One of the most controversial things was your showdown with Ric Flair in 1991, right? Uh, which led to Ric Flair going to the WWF, right? Um, over a contract dispute, um, he, I guess, I guess, basically, he, uh, in in exchange for dropping the title, he wanted a, a contract extension. It was kind of a holdup. Uh, what was what was your side of basically what happened with Flair, and do you kind of regret it happening? Oh, regret it. I, you know, it was a stupid act on my part by allowing a, an old, I really didn't uh, uh, really appreciate how deeply the Flair, Dusty Rhodes uh, hate was for each other. And uh, when I made the mistake of bringing Dusty in as the booker, which was a, you know, humongous mistake for me, uh, prodded by Petrick and, 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 and ratings and uh, lots of different things make you do dumb things. <laughs> and, but you gotta look at my, the other side of it. There weren't any, uh, runways and, uh, thunder cages and, uh, and fireworks and everything before I came along because Vince Sears Hell didn't have them before I, if you go back and look at the tapes, those entrances weren't around before Jim Hurd started them. But to go ahead with your question, uh, 
Flair was was holding out, and and it wasn't the first holdout. I can go back to when uh, Flair. I couldn't get Flair to sign a contract. We were at the uh, we were at the Rosemont Horizon in, in Chicago, and uh, and it's time for the main event, and Flair won't come out, and I mean the feet are hitting the floor, and uh, uh, I think the roof's coming in, and he and I are in in the shower if you'll pardon the expression, trying to, to get him to sign a contract upside down with an ink pen that won't write straight up. It took us <laughs> forever. And I thought we were going to have a riot on our hands. Finally, we got it signed, and he goes out and, and does his great normal performance. And and so, anyway, uh, but to go back to the original question, yeah, Dusty was Dusty uh, was uh, instrumental in, in that, that deal. He won Flair out, and, uh, and so they convinced me that we ought to not go ahead with the contract, and Flair, uh, Flair jumped and took the belt, and they, and they took the belt to New York. And as you, most of your fans know, they, uh, you know, who is a real champion? What is a real champion? They, uh, they uh, beat the hell out of the NWA belt and put it on their air, and I thought it was a pretty good deal. You know, a few weeks ago, I debuted a new segment on this show. Since we talk about the particular week in wrestling history, all different years. I said, you know, why don't I do something similar with non-wrestling related stuff? Just choose a particular year and what was going down during this time, non-wrestling related for that particular year. And I got to tell you, of all of the feedback that I have received from everyone over the last month, the non-wrestling segment has been the number one most discussed item. All you know, positive to the point where I'm getting a lot of people now that are saying to me, why don't you do a small podcast dedicated to what went down in non-wrestling history for a particular week? Honestly, it's not a bad idea, and I could probably get away with doing a 30-minute episode every week. The problem is, is that with the amount of research and work that would be involved, there's just not enough hours in a day right now for yours truly to do it. The workload is heavy with all of the shows, but I will definitely keep that in mind in the future. So, uh, but you, I think you'll really enjoy this week's segment because we got news, politics, sports, pop culture, events, but I also got a couple of audio clips, some music, and one is an incident that took place I think a lot of people may have forgot about. So let's kick it off, shall we? This time in 1991, Boris Yeltsin was sworn in as the first elected president of the Russian Federation. Russia and the U.S. signed a reduction pact to cut down on long-range nuclear missiles. This time in 1991, U.S. troops leave northern Iraq. The Senate votes to allow women to fly combat aircraft. Yep, they were not allowed to fly aircrafts in the military until June of 91. Jeffrey Dahmer confesses to killing 17 men back in 1978. The most popular movie released at this time in 1991, Terminator 2, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Linda Hamilton, and Edward Furlong. Now, first audio mini clip for this non-wrestling segment. 1991 took place on July 2nd. Guns N' Roses had a concert in St. Louis during the performance of the song Rocket Queen, basically Axl Rose started a riot. Now, you're going to hear actual audio footage 
of the concert, two minutes worth, and then you're going to hear a news clipping from MTV that took place, you know, basically summarizing what went down after the fact. But just to give you a little prelude, there was a guy sitting near the front row that was taking photos at the concert. Cameras were not allowed. And Axl Rose saw this guy taking pictures, and they claimed that he had requested security a couple of times to remove the camera security never did so axel rose basically said fuck it i'm gonna do it myself he lunges launches himself into the crowd gets the camera little melee you know ensues and then he goes back onto the stage pissed off he says he's leaving the fucking stage slams the microphone down and breaks it and because the microphone was broken uh, Slash gets on, on a, I guess, he you can't even hear him because the microphone's broken, and he's like, he just smashed the microphone, we're out of here. It ended up in a riot. Dozens of people were injured. Axel Rose actually was uh, arrested, and I'll, I'll let you hear the footage itself, but it's interesting that there's even footage of Axel Rose, you know, j- jumping this guy. It's all on YouTube, so go check it out. But here you go first. Uh, Axel Rose, the Guns N' Roses incident, this time First, Axel Rose appeared in court in Missouri this week to plead guilty to four charges of assault and criminal damage stemming from a concert riot in St. Louis a year ago. His trial date was set for October the 13th. The 30-year-old Guns N' Roses frontman, who was arrested in New York last weekend and released on $100,000 bail, arrived wearing a pink Versace suit. The warrant for his arrest was issued by the St. Louis prosecutor following the riot last July, in which 40 people were injured. MTV News was also present when Rose arrived, handcuffed at the New York court where his bail was set. After the hearing, MTV's Kurt Loder hitched a ride in Axel's limousine and spoke to the singer as he rode back to his Manhattan hotel. Axel, you all right? No, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. What happened? Um, the prosecutor reneged on a promise he made. I'm, I'm going there uh, on the 15th, and he said this wouldn't happen any life. You going to be out soon? I think so. Rose had been arrested on an outstanding warrant issued months ago by a prosecutor in St. Louis named McCulloch, who had been trying for nearly a year to get Rose to return to that city to answer to four misdemeanor assault charges and one misdemeanor property damage charge stemming from a riot at a Guns N' Roses concert in St. Louis last July. After three and a half hours at the Queen's Courthouse, Rose was released on $100,000 bail and an agreement that he would finally fly back to St. Louis this week, as he'd already planned to do. We jumped into a limo with him for an exclusive interview on the way back to his hotel in Manhattan and asked him how he'd been treated in jail. 
What do they do when they put you in jail? Did you have a cell by yourself, or were there other people? Did you get to talk to any other like inmates or? Anything? No, I'm, I basically spent my time writing autographs for cops and talking with them about rock and roll. I met all these really cool cops that were telling me all about when they went to Woodstock and everything. It was great. <laughs> New York cops are the best. <laughs> The question in many observers' minds, of course, was why Rose didn't just return to St. Louis to plead his case months ago. According to Rose, it's taken this long to work out an ironclad deal, which, as things stand now, means a sentence of two years probation reduced to one year. We've just been waiting till, like, to get the, the case somewhat solidified and in writing before we go, because I don't want to go there and get set up. You know, well, you come here, it's going to be like this, and then it's, it's a whole different story, and, and you end up sitting in St. Louis for a long time. What does probation mean? You can't do it, come back to St. Louis and do something bad, or you can't do something bad anywhere in the country? It's like anywhere. It, it's anywhere, but I'm not really worried about any of that because I really don't spend my time breaking the law, so I'm not really worried about that. It just depends on, you know, if you play someplace where somebody doesn't like rock and roll or Guns N' Roses, they could say I did something, you know. You never know what will happen with that. And what exactly happened at that St. Louis concert one year ago? Did Rose provoke a riot, or was he simply reacting to a collapse in concert security? Here's what he told us. We have a tape of one guy on stage with a knife, and uh, we lost a million dollars worth of equipment in that, in that show. And I don't see anybody else taking any responsibility for anything. I'm, I'm saying, yeah, I jumped off stage, and yeah, things went haywire after that, and I, maybe I could have handled it better or whatever but no one was really handling anything at that point. So I took it into my own hands with what I could do and what crossed my mind that time because I'd been pretty much pushed to the limit by their lack of security. Um, but I don't see anybody else in St. Louis really taking any uh, responsibility for anything that happened. Guns N' Roses would not appear in that city again until July 2017. Other news that went down at the end of June slash early July in 1991, MTV announces that they're going to split their network into three different cable channels starting 1993. I know a lot of you remember this debacle. Pee Wee Herman arrested in Florida. He's at an adult movie theater and he was caught jerking off. <laughs> Unfucking believable. <laughs> Donald J. Trump proposes marriage to Marla Maples. She says yes. Gives her a 7.5 carat diamond ring. Remember Sanford and Son? We need to meet. Red Fox, 68 years old at the time. He gets married in Las Vegas to Ka Ho Cho. Kirk Cameron, Growing Pain star. He marries his co-star Chelsea Noble in upstate New York. It was this week in 1991 that all the buzz was this new uh, phenomenon coming to computers called the World Wide Web. Now, I believe its official debut is August 6th of 91, but this week at that time, there was all the buzz that we were going to be introduced to a uh, just a totally different gamut in the world of computers, technology and communications. And just to show you how some people were thinking ahead at the, of the game, it was this week in July of 1991, July 2nd, I believe, to be exact. There was a gentleman in San Francisco, California. He took his coffee house, put computer stations in there. They were, you had to pay a quarter to use them, and he created the first ever cyber cafe. So the, the internet wasn't launched yet, but this guy had the idea that, you know what? You pay a quarter, you come in, you have some coffee, you could use computers. You couldn't do much in 91, but you could do enough. 
And that was when the first cyber cafe ever took place. Sports news, the Colorado Rockies and the Florida Marlins are given the go, and their teams would uh, be created and eventually debut in Major League Baseball. Wimbledon, the 98th Women's Tennis Open, Steffi Graf beats Gabriella Sabatini, 6-4, Michael Stieck, and it's funny, Michael Stieck. If you say it the right way, someone told me once that you can't say it properly without spitting. And I'm not going to lie to you, when I actually was practicing, like, you know, going over how, what order I was going to bring these things up, and I was saying, you know, practice on the mic earlier, Stieck, yeah, I had a nice stream of uh, spittle go into my fucking, you know, mic filter thing. So I had to change it. So uh, Michael Sheik beats Boris Becker, 647664. The U.S. Women's Open Golf Championship, the 46th annual, won by Meg Mallon. And the 12th annual U.S. Senior Golf Open was won by Jack Nicholas. Alice Miller wins the LBGA Jamie Farr Toledo Golf Classic. The British Golf Open, Ian Baker Finch wins. And Betsy King wins the LBGA uh, JAL Big Apple Golf Classic. So Major League Baseball, and I remember this, and it was really, really sad at the time. Major League umpire Steve Palermo and Terrence Mann, former defensive lineman in the NFL, they were both shot trying to help two waitresses from being robbed. Dennis Martinez pitches the 13th perfect game in Major League Baseball history. Cal Ripken plays as in his 1500th consecutive game. We had the All-Star game take place. The AL defeated the NL 4-2. They played at the Sky Dome in Toronto, Canada. It was the 62nd annual of the Classic. Ferguson Jenkins, Gaylord Perry, Rod Carew, Tony Lazari, Bill Veck are elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Pittsburgh Steelers guard Terry Long uh, attempts suicide after learning that he had tested positive for steroids and was going to be suspended. Also, this time back in 1991, Mike Tyson is accused of raping a Miss Black America contestant, Desiree Washington. I know you know pretty much the case by now, but it put a big damper in the whole Miss Black America pageant that was taking place at that time. And a little tidbit that I know a lot of you out there don't even realize to this day. Do you know who won the Miss Black America pageant in 1991, the same one where Desiree Washington was competing as well? Shawmel Sullivan, the wife of Booker T. Now, we always seen her as Queen Shawmel, but I have a feeling some of you out there did not know that she actually won this competition. Michael Landon passed away at 54 from cancer and Burt Convy, who was an actor, but he also hosted some game shows. When I was a kid, I remember they had the show Tattletales. He died at 57. The average cost of gas per gallon at the time was $1.12. The cost of a postage stamp was 29 cents. And finally, I'm going to give you four quick musical flashbacks. What was going on in 1991 this week? First, the top dance song, that was being played in America. D Light's Good Beat.
top hip-hop song that I absolutely loved at the time. I, I don't know, I just loved the beat. A lot of the rap lyrics I wasn't thrilled about, but the beats that they used to use were fucking phenomenal. This week in 91, a top rap song was Cool Moldy's Rise and Shine, which also featured KRS-One and Chuck D. the top pop song this week in 1991 Paul Abdul's Rush Rush All right enough of that song didn't like Paul Abdul music at the time I had nothing against her but any longtime listener, growing up Don Tony, I've talked about it before. It was right around this time in 1991 that yours truly took my ex-girlfriend to see Paul Abdul live in Madison Square Garden and Color Me Fucking Bad opened up for her. So not only did I have to sit front row and labor through Paul Abdul music, but I had to fucking deal with Color Me Bad opening up for them. Ooh, I want to sex you up. TikTok, you don't stop. Oh, fuck that shit. But I did say there was four musical clips this week, not including the Guns N' Roses one earlier. It was this week in 1991 that a heavy metal band released the following song that I have a feeling some of you remember fondly, even in wrestling. So there you go. Flashback. 1991. Hope you enjoyed it. 1992. Not a big moment in wrestling history, but something I thought you would get a kick out of. And I had to get the screenshot from my own video collection because there was none online. But in 1992, Perry Saturn, you know, ECW fame, WWE, WCW, Moppy, the Eliminators. I mean, who could ever forget Perry Saturn? He actually wrestled for the WWF in the early 90s, and he wrestled under the name Peter Motts. So, if, and look, he had the giant mullet at the time, and if you're curious to see what Perry Saturn looked like as Peter Motts wrestling as a jobber for the WWF in 1992, go check out our synopsis page from this week. So now we get to 1993, the WCW debut of Booker T and Stevie Ray. There is no footage of this. There are no screenshots of it. And honestly, this is a good thing. Uh, let me just explain how this went down briefly. Sid Vicious was on a card. I think it was the Atkinson Memorial Show in Dallas, Texas. Booker T and Stevie Ray were on that card, I believe, is the Ebony Experience. 
Sid was so impressed with their work that he recommended them to WCW. WCW was very interested in them, uh, brought them in, and the gimmick that they were originally brought in as. Okay, now think back to Colonel Robert Parker. Cowboy hat, the way he talked, the white suit. You think of racism in the South. I mean, I'm not saying Rob Parker was a racist, but you just picture this scenario. They were brought in, Chi-Town Heat, some people have called them the posse. And the whole storyline idea, and I think the uh, the people who came up with this at the time was Dusty Rhodes, Greg Gagne, and Mike Graham. I don't know if it was all three of them or one of the three, but they came up with the idea that they were going to be coming out in shackles and chains and like prison garb. And Colonel Rob Parker would be their manager, and he got them out of prison on an early work release, some something like that. So they come out. They get totally destroyed by the fans. And Eric Bischoff, who apparently didn't even know at the time that this was going to be the gimmick, as soon as he heard about it, he fucking said, this is never, ever going to make TV. When WCW president Bill Shaw found out about it, he almost fired them. But, you know, this wasn't Stevie Ray or Booker T's idea. So what are you going to fire the guys for? So anyway, they met with Dusty Rhodes they talked about, you know, what they can basically call it, you know, call a team and call each other. Now, when they were brought in to WCW, their names were Kane and Cole with a K. And they wanted to be Booker T and Stevie Ray, that everybody remembered them that way from the global days. And Dusty Rhodes agreed. And, you know, some people have credited Dusty with coming up the, with the name Harlem Heat. I believe it was Booker T that came up with the name, but Dusty agreed to it. And they went with Harlem Heat. And obviously, ever since, the rest is history. But, uh, yeah, it was this week in 93 that they came in. 1995, uh, a memorable match. You know, Wayne Waylon Mercy making his main roster debut for the WWF. There is one match that some people say did take place at uh, a Superstars taping right before this one. But I know WWE actually considers this match his in-ring debut uh, for television, for WWF. Waylon Mercy, I fucking loved that gimmick at the time. I fucking have praised it all these years. You know, and you think back that I started my wrestling hotline in 1997, and Waylon Mercy debuted for Monday Night Raw in 1995. It was only two years before. I loved that character. It's a shame that it didn't work out as good as it should have for Dan Spivey, but he came in, he was on TV, and who did he wrestle that night? Jeff Hardy. And I took a screenshot, and I put it on my synopsis of Jeff Hardy. Just look at his face when he is being choked out by Waylon Mercy. I thought it was wonderful. And I liked the match. So you go watch it online. <laughs> Just look at uh, Jeff Hardy's facial reaction. He's being choked. I did, did, little things like that really stand out to me. Another match I want to bring up from 1995, and at the time I thought it was way ahead of its time. And it doesn't get much mention anymore, which is a shame because I know we were all in awe when it went down at the ECW Arena. It was this week in 95 that Axel and Ian Rotten had the infamous Taipei death match with the glass and everything. And Bill Alfonso, who I have praised tremendously, I mean, it's just, it, I don't think people understand you know, the importance of Bill Alfonso, not only, you know, how good of a referee he was before he even went to ECW, 
but the transition into this heel character on behalf of the State Athletic Commission as a referee, and then he becomes a manager. And Bill Alfonso is really unappreciated, in my honest opinion. But he was all over this because he didn't want the match to continue. I think Public Enemy and Gangsters were brawling in the aisleway. So Bell Alfonso left to break those guys up. And because these two guys were left in the ring with Todd Gordon, Todd Gordon let the match continue. And man, did they bloody themselves up. So it's a really entertaining match you want to see it. I know people will nitpick about certain moments of it. I liked it. And to me, that's all that matters. If you like it, good. Finally, 1995, we had a mask versus mask match. And basically, it was uh, winners. That's the name. Winners lost the mask versus mask match against Super Calo. Took place for Triple A's, Triple Mania 3 in Maduro, Mexico. And when he took the mask off, winners was revealed to be Bismo Negro. You go back to Triple Mania 3, that card that night. That was a fucking powerful, big-time card. Cien Carras, Fishman, Jerry Estrada, Mascara, Ano Dos Mil, and Universal Dos Mil versus Mascarita Sagrada, Latin Lover, La Parca, Conan, and Paraguayo. You have El Hijo del Santo, Octagon, and Rey Mysterio versus Blue Panther, Fuerza Guerrera, and Psicosis. I mean, there, there are other matches as well. It was a loaded, loaded card. It was a lot of fun. So go check it out if you can. 1996, Monday Night Raw, they did a taping in Green Bay, Wisconsin. They did it early because of the 4th of July holiday coming up. We had a match between Owen Hart and the Ultimate Warrior. Ultimate Warrior won by DQ. And the reason why I mention this match is this would be the last ever WWF slash WWE match for the Ultimate Warrior. He would end up leaving the company for missing a few appearances. There's been a couple of uh, different stories over the years as far as why he missed some shows. But unfortunately, this was, in fact, Warriors' last match to uh, ever take place for WWF. And um, there's some matches that they actually had set up with him, teaming up with Shawn Michaels, teaming up with Ahmed Johnson, and unfortunately, did not happen. And it's a shame. It really is a shame. So, you know, there you go. 1997, we got to go to another audio clip. Now, first, I want to just talk about a few other things as well. Actually, we got a couple of audio clips this time around. This is pretty cool. And it's great because we cover WCW, WWF slash WWE, and ECW, all three of them, this week in 1997. First off, let's talk about WCW. They actually had a Saturday Nitro in Inglewood, California. Now, the interesting thing about it is there is footage. I, I was shocked because I, I, I looked around to try to find some of these paper listens. There's been a guy online, I'm not going to mention his name right now, but he has claimed for a couple of years that he's got these paper listens uh, saved as media files. And, you know... <laughs> I know a lot of you out there are technically knowledgeable as far as the internet goes. I mean, to convert a file from real audio, real media to WAVE or MP3, it's just a couple of clicks of a button. And it blows me away, you know, to see people who have been online for 5, 10, 20 years and they still don't even know how to, like, record audio 
or record video or edit something. I mean, I don't expect everybody to be professional editors, but some of the shit that I see people write and even this guy to claim that he hasn't put it online yet because he's got to convert the audio. You know, in this fucking day and age, you're a liar. You're a flat out liar because to convert a real media, which is how it was presented at the time, because I remember buying one or two of these events, but I never ever thought of recording it at the time. Um, it's not hard to do. It takes about five minutes of work. But in 1997, they did one of these Saturday Nitros, paper listens, took place in California. As I said earlier, somebody with a camcorder actually recorded Chris Jericho winning the Cruiserweight title from six X-Pac. He won it in about 35 or 40 seconds, and that footage is online. It's very grainy, but this event did take place this week in 97. Just to give you an idea of what the card was like, because they really did stack it for these paper listens as well. Main event, Lex Luger and a Giant over the Outsiders by DQ for, in a WCW tag title match. Diamond Dallas Page over Macho Man. Roddy Piper over Ric Flair. Jericho over Six, as I said. Uh, Six defeated Rey Mysterio Jr. earlier to retain the title, and then he faced Chris Jericho. Steiners over Buff Bagwell and Masahiro Chono. Eddie Guerrero over Dean Malenko. Ultimo Dragon over Sikosis. Damian, Hoovy, and Supercalo over Conan, Villano number four, and La Parca. It's a pretty stacked card. So hopefully one day, if this guy really has this footage, he puts it online. It's not hard, people. And I know a lot of you out there, I, I know you know the technical stuff I'm talking about. So now let's go to WWE. Monday Night Raw, Des Moines, Iowa. At the time, Paul Bearer was not in the good graces of, of The Undertaker and vice versa. They were feuding with each other. And it was this week in wrestling history that we first heard about his brother Kane. Something that Paul Bearer erupts. This is something that Paul Bearer has known on The Undertaker for a long, long time. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Paul Bearer. And you have to wonder what Paul Bearer is about to say. What effect will it have on The Undertaker this Sunday on pay-per-view? Who is this idiot? There's some fans. Some ladies. See, you think those fans don't deserve to be slugged? Well, we'll get some security out here. Easy. Mr. Bear. That's one of the creatures of the night, I would assume. I'd like to remind you, Paul Bear, that The Undertaker is here with us tonight. And he, along with millions of others will be listening to every word you say. Well, we're going to have to go back a few years, Mr. McMahon. About 20 years to be exact. We're talking about a little funeral home sitting up on a hill, beautiful oak trees all around, and a wonderful, wonderful family-owned funeral home. The family lived upstairs. The father was the mortician who ran the funeral home. The mother was the secretary, the receptionist. But there were two little kids there. 
One kid was a little red-headed punk. And then there was a second kid, a sweet little kid, named Cain. Now, I was the apprentice at the funeral home. I worked under the red-headed punk's father, who by now, you probably know, is The Undertaker. The Undertaker's father was a mortician of excellence. He taught me everything I know. He taught me the correct way to prepare a body for burial, how to do the makeup, how to deal with the families. He taught me from A to Z. But while I was working at that funeral home, I seen a lot of things going on that shouldn't been happening. This little red-headed punk, there was something funny about him. He had a look in his eyes. The look of the devil. He was a devil's seed, if you know what I mean. What was so sad about the whole situation is that poor little Cain, the little brother, followed the undertaker around everywhere he went. The undertaker was little Cain's hero. Anything the undertaker did was fine. Well, it went on for about two years, my apprenticeship. I was going to college at night, taking courses in mortuary science at the same time. The undertaker and Cain would run around the funeral home like wild men. They had free reign of the property. They'd sneak out behind the garage. I see what they were doing. Their mom and daddy didn't see what they were doing, but I saw what they were doing. I saw them taking chemicals out of the bombing room of the funeral home. I saw them sneaking behind the garage, smoking cigarettes when they were little kids. But you know, one particular afternoon, I was leaving to go to school. As I backed my car out of the funeral home, I looked behind, and who do I see? That red-head devil seed undertaker with his little brother. Something was funny, it, it, something didn't seem right. But I went ahead and backed out of the driveway, went to school. I came back from school about 10 o'clock that night, and what do I see? I see fire trucks. I see ambulance. I see steam and smoke, and I see the funeral home in ashes. Someone burned down the funeral home. Inside the funeral home was this lovely family that took care of me. I looked over to the bushes. Who did I see in the bushes but the undertaker? Undertaker, you burnt the funeral home to the ground. And along with the funeral home, 
You killed your parents. You killed your family, Undertaker. I know it. I've had this secret on my inside all my life. 20 years. You killed them. Undertaker, you are a murderer. You are a murderer, Undertaker. You're a goddamn murderer. You know, I should have mentioned this before I played the clip. If you actually watched that footage when Paul Bearer first came out, a female fan jumped the guardrail and knocked him on his ass. I kid you not. I don't. A lot of people, I don't think ever even knew that happened, but it's still available online if you want to go check it out. You're, you're a goddamn murderer. Oh, yes. Oh, by the way, I want to just tell you right now. Um, the audio you heard at the beginning of the show of Paul Barra with the Save Me stuff, I'm not going to repeat that audio later on because really what you heard at the beginning is really what went down. And, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but let's get to Jim Cornette. This week in history, and if you've been following these shows, especially over the last few weeks, we had Jerry Lawler invade ECW. Feuding with Tommy Dreamer, and it was a big deal at the time. ECW showed up on Memphis. ECW was on Monday Night Raw earlier in the year. They still had RVD and Sabu doing Monday Night Raw appearances. So at this time, ECW has got a shitload of buzz and a shitload of momentum. So it was this week in history that Jim Cornette was the latest surprise to show up at the ECW arena. I mean, I remember it. Not as if it was yesterday, but I still close my eyes and remember when the lights came on and he whacked Tommy Dreamer with the tennis racket. And then, unfortunately, um, Jerry Lawler, uh, Singapore Kane, Tommy Dreamer in the nuts. <laughs> and it was brutal. You actually watch and you hear this yelp come out of Tommy Dreamer. If, if you've ever stepped on like a dog's tail or a dog's foot and you hear that quick yelp, that's what Tommy Dreamer sounded like. But... You know, unfortunately, Jim Cornette would not stick around and do any more appearances for ECW. And what I'm going to share with you right now is an audio interview that Jim Cornette did about this appearance. There is a story and there is a backdrop that leads up to it. Now, I don't want to repeat things that Jim Cornette's about to say, but just to set this up a little bit, I'm sure a lot of you out there remember when Shane Douglas threw down the NWA title. A lot of bitterness between Dennis Carluzzo and Todd Gordon, Dennis Carluzzo and Paul Heyman. And Dennis Carluzzo was very close friends with Jim Cornette. So Jim Cornette, after originally not agreeing to appear at this ECW event, he agreed to appear under a few demands. Unfortunately, those demands were not met. So that's why we never had Jim Cornette appear again in ECW. Now, Jim Cornette has appeared in Ring of Honor in ECW arena. But as far as ECW goes, this was it. So here is Jim Cornette describing how everything went down this week in 1997. I'm in Connecticut. I'm in, at the house one day, 35 miles from Stamford. And the phone rings, Chris Candido calls me. And he says, will you make a shot for us in ECW? I said, 
No, Chris, not really. No, it's, oh, come on. We need a surprise. What do you mean you need a surprise? Well, we, we got the ECW Arena show, the, you know, next month or whatever, and we, we don't have a surprise for it. I said, well, I just don't have a surprise. No, we have a surprise on every show. I said, doesn't that tax the definition of the word surprise? A surprise is an unexpected event. If you expect a surprise, it can't be a surprise. Anyway, we went around and around like this. He wanted me to come. Nobody will ever call it his thing with Lawler, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right, let me, let me talk to Paul one time. And I talked to Paul. I said, okay. I said, I said I'm going to do this for Chris because it, Chris was like, it'll make me look good with Paul. Okay. Paul, I know you're full of shit. And you know I know you're full of shit. Just don't fucking be full of shit with me and, and we'll be fine here. Right? And the deal was I didn't want paid. Here's what I asked for. I said, I don't want to work for ECW. I will do this shot for you, Chris Candido, if Paul Lee will do something for me. I want Paul Lee to shake Dennis Corluzzo's hand and bury the hatchet amongst their wars, and I'll get Dennis to do the same on his side. And then when the ECW guys are off, maybe let them work some of Dennis's spot shows, get them some extra work, right? Because Dennis has been promoting in the, in the town for a lot longer than Paul has, and that's when he'd screwed him over in 1994 with the NWA title tournament, made Dennis look bad in front of all his friends and everybody. I said, if he will bury the hatchet, shake hands, and agree to fucking let bygones be bygones and maybe help Dennis with one of his spot shows every now and then, I'll do it. <clears throat> okay, Paulie agrees to it. That's why I said, I know you're full of shit, but don't be full of shit with me, and we'll be fine. I said, I don't want paid. Uh, and then they said, well, we'll send a car to get you. And I, I said, all right. I said, uh, I said I'll meet you at, uh, at the office in Stamford, right? So I go to Stamford and meet at the parking garage. He sends a limo, a chauffeur-driven limo. Okay, all I wanted was a car. I didn't even ask for a car. I asked for directions. I said, no, we'll send a car. So he drives me to chauffeur-driven limousine down to Philadelphia, and we pick up Dennis Corluzzo, and he has arranged for me and Dennis Corluzzo to go and have dinner at Morton's Steakhouse, which ain't cheap, folks. Mm. So the limo takes us to Morton's, and Mr. Heyman is taking care of everything, right? So we eat like crazy, and Dennis snatches about three or four cigars, you know, not to let this chance go by. And then takes us to the ECW arena. The reason why I can't answer some of those questions, which yeah. you have flipped away from, is because was going to the ECW arena for this angle something you were looking forward to doing? No, I would actually rather been home in my house because I lived in Connecticut and I hated fucking going up and down the goddamn turnpikes and fucking roads and I didn't want to do this show to begin with and I, w I supposedly wasn't getting paid. I was looking forward to seeing Dennis Corluzzo and then all of a sudden when I found out we were going to eat at Morton's, I was looking forward to that. What was it like being in the ECW arena is probably the biggest heel on the show. He wanted me to be a surprise. So the limousine after Morton's took us and held us until it was time for us to pull up to the ECW arena, which I never even saw because we were in the back of a fucking limousine. It's supposed to be a surprise. So we pulled up in the back. Here comes Paul gets in the limo says, okay, we're almost ready. We're going to take you in in a minute. But Dennis, first off bygones water under the bridge. Boom, boom, boom. They're happy. Listen, We'll take care of everything. Just like I said, I'm going to have a meeting. I don't want you to go in right now because the show's going on. We didn't want to blow the surprise. So if you go in right now, something could happen. Some of the boys, you know, you never know. I'm going to have a meeting and tell them that all the bygones are bygones and all is water under the bridge and we've shaken hands and we're going to trade talent, blah, blah, blah. And love's in the air. 
come on, Jim. So they take me in, and I'm in, a, in the fucking back. The match is already going on. I'm going to run in. They just say, here, this guy's going to, when the lights go out, you're going to run. It's dark. You show up in the ring, beat the piss out of everybody, and in whatever time to go was, right? So I'm standing in the back of an arena that I've never seen. From the, I've never seen the arena outside, and I've never seen the outside of the building. Um, and basically the lights went out, ran in. When the lights came on, I'm in the ring with the racket. I'm starting to whack people. I go over to Tommy Dreamer and I whack him once. He don't sell it. He just, he's, I said, oh, you're fucking hurt. Cause Lawler had hit him with the fucking kendo stick and the nuts and his nuts had swelled up oh, the size of fucking cabbages. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, so I immediately got away from him and the people pelted us with garbage about that deep in the ring. And we said, fuck you. And I turned around to, cause I didn't have my glasses on. Right. And I can't see, but I turned around to where I envisioned that Paulie might be. And I was like, fuck you. And we ran through the crowd. And on the way back, as we come in the back area now, fucking Paul has an envelope. And as they're rushing me to the limousine, he slaps the envelope in my hand. And I, they run me to the fucking limousine, throw me in the back, and the limousine screeches off. I imagine there's villagers carrying pitchforks and torches coming out of the building behind me. I look in the envelope, $750 in cash. So what I wanted was for him to shake hands with Dennis Corluzzo, say all is forgiven and agree to trade talent and respect each other's shows. I got a limo ride. I got dinner at Morton's. I got $750 in cash. And it wasn't fucking three days later that fucking Paul was denying that he'd ever fucking shook hands with Dennis Corluzzo and that Dennis did something to go back on their fucking deal that they supposedly didn't make and they never fucking spoke to each other again and none of that shit came about. So I got everything in the world treated like a king except the one thing that I fucking asked for and that, no. Dennis called me like three or four days later. He's like, he's already knocking me. What the fuck? Wrapping up 1997, Michael Cole makes his TV debut for the WWE. Backstage segment interviewing the Legion of Doom. It only went about a minute, but for those curious to hear how Michael Cole sounded back in 1997, here you go. Standing by, we have the Legion of Doom along with our new broadcast colleague, Michael Cole. Back there with Animal, back there with Hawk, LOD, ready for action. Momentarily, it's taking to Michael Cole. All right, thanks, guys. In the locker room with the Legion of Doom, Animal and Hawk, and gentlemen, if you can defeat the Nation of Domination tonight, you will advance to the finals of the Tag Team Tournament. Your thoughts? First of all, there is not a single team here in the WWF that has never come close to beating the LOD legally. And Nation of Domination, we're going to go and go through you to reach our optimum goal, the tag team belts. Tell them, Hawk. Well, Nation of Domination, get ready to enter Road Warrior World. You know, when we get done with you tonight, you're going to be the equivalent of a large pile of steaming backwaddle and other small animal excrements. Ugh, what a rush. 1998. Big week for wrestling. Big week for wrestling. First, we had an infamous ECW main event. The Dudleys, Bubba Ray Devon and Big Dick Dudley over to Sandman, Tommy Dreamer, and FMW owner Atsushi Onita. And at that time, there was a lot of buzz about ECW and FMW having a working relationship. And yes, ECW did go to Japan. Unfortunately, Onita's appearance for ECW did not really go all that well. Onita turned on Sandman. There was going to be a press conference that was going to lead to a feud between Sandman and Onita. 
Never took place. This was Onita's only appearance ever for ECW in the United States. In 1998 as well, uh, we had WCW at the time and the NWO. NWO was very, very popular still. And WCW, to try to capitalize on the popularity of NWO, they had their own NWO hotline. Now remember, we had the WCW hotline. What was it? one 909 I always remember Mean Gene Oakley with that number. But do you remember one 4004 the NWO hotline? The following announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. No, word has it, a lot of you wrestling fans are jumping on the NWO bandwagon. You know, it's because you want to be a part of the hippest thing in wrestling. We don't play God. That's why we started our own hotline. It's the NWO hotline. Call 1-900-454-4004. Dollar 59 per minute. Kids, get your parents' permission before calling or else. The preceding announcement has been paid for by the New World Order. It's interesting going back because I've talked in the past on how I was asked to do a 1-900 hotline around 1999. They were expensive to run at the time, but they weren't that expensive. And also when you realize in perspective that we're talking 1998 with NWO. We're not talking 99 and 2000 when things really started to go downhill and fast. And for uh, WCW to decide this early in the game that they were going to drop the NWO hotline because fans really didn't show much interest to it, very, very surprising. It really was. So now we go to um, just indie wrestling. Remember I talked a few moments ago as far as Dennis Carluzzo Jim Cornette wanted Dennis Caluso and Paul Heyman to shake hands and bury the hatchet. Well, you know, Jim Cornette was not involved in this. But, you know, I don't know. I I think in a way it might have been done to try to give a little bit of a fuck you to ECW. But it was this week in 1998, one year later, from the Jim Cornette stuff, that we had Todd Gordon show up at the Dennis Caluso house show in Jersey. And basically what the storyline was, was that um, Dennis Caluso was attacked by a couple of masked men. And it was revealed to be Stevie Richards, the Pitbulls, and I think 911. And one of the masked men had an outfit on, little pudgy, a little suit, you know, he had the suit on. And people realized that it was Todd Gordon. And remember, a lot of dissension between Caluso, Todd Gordon, and Paul Heyman. Now, we know now about the handshake and burying the hatchet that Jim Cornette wanted between Carluzzo and Heyman. We really didn't know that publicly all that much. I know Meltzer, I think, had covered it at the time. But we didn't know that Todd Gordon and Dennis Carluzzo sort of buried the hatchet themselves. And at this point, Todd Gordon was no longer involved in ECW. They had that whole mess where they found out that Todd Gordon was secretly talking to ECW wrestlers about jumping ship to go to WCW. So we had Todd Gordon show up at a Dennis Carluzzo event to basically attack Carluzzo and start a little bit of a storyline of ECW guys versus Dennis Carluzzo's uh, promotion. So there you go. Now, two more moments we definitely need to cover. And one of them, obviously, is... Probably uh, the biggest moment in the history of WWF attitude, arguably the biggest moment that Mick Foley will always be remembered for. And it is the anniversary of the infamous match, 
king of the ring between Mick Foley, Mankind, and The Undertaker. Mick Foley, you know, fell uh, through the cage. And, you know, people have said, including Mick Foley himself, that that second fall was even worse than the first fall. Undertaker, quote-unquote, throwing Mick Foley off the top of the hell in the cell through the table. And it's just uh, uh, an, aura, an aura about that match. And I actually wrote this on Twitter. You know, all of us have had moments in our life where you remember where you were when, blah, 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 blah. Positive moments, negative moments. There are just certain things, even going back to my childhood, certain moments where I remember where I was, what I was doing, in some cases, other aspects of that particular moment. I mean, a lot of people bring up 9-11 and a few others, but with Mick Foley versus Undertaker, King of the Ring in 1998, I remember where I was. I remember my friends, who was in my place with me. I remember what we were eating. And I remember all of us just quiet and silent as we were watching that. And we legitimately shared, like said silent prayers after the match was over because you knew Mick Foley was hurt, but you didn't know the extent of his injuries. You see the fucking tooth hanging out through his nose. It was scary, scary shit. Now, the interesting thing about it, and I don't want to start any controversy, but, you know, you have some uh, dispute as if was Mick Foley supposed to fall through the cage or not? And without naming any specific name, some people at work within WWE said that it was not planned for him to go through that cage, the, the top of the cage. You actually go back and you look at it, that specific area where he was thrown to, if you look closely, you know, it's not easy to see, but you will notice that there was a lot of things being held by twist ties. Now, I'm not talking the twist ties that you tie around the garbage to throw it out. You know, more, you know, strength, you know, stronger ones. Maybe the ones you arrest people with. I mean, really, really strong zip ties. But believe me, if you're going to have fucking two guys, total weight, almost 600 pounds, standing atop the cage, you're not going to fucking fasten shit with zip ties. And I'm not saying that it was only fastened by zip ties, but... You know, I'm not sold on the idea that that was not planned. Um, and, and I'll tell you why also. Was it after him going through the table and being as injured as he was, all right, why would you not throw an audible and have Undertaker climb down that cage? Undertaker stood on the top of the cage the entire time. All right, and Mick Foley decided to climb up the cage. Now, of course, he's a tough son of a bitch. And, you know, he is just, it's insane that he actually continued the match and climbed back up. But you would think that some type of an audible would have been done at that particular moment, not have this man. And plus, what would have been the purpose of going up the cage again? Were they going to climb back down on either side of it? They, they had to go inside the hell in the cell to have the match. So climbing up the cage after that spot, if you go back and you look at it, did it make sense? What were they going to do? How were they going to... 
go off the top of the cage and continue to match inside. So, you know, when I hear people say that that wasn't planned, they never ever explain what the idea was to get them back in the cage. What, were they going to take, you know, dives off the top again? So I'm not sold on that. And I'm going to share with you right now a majority of the match. A couple of things I want to just mention, though. First off, it's about 25 minutes of audio. And I did trim some parts of it, but I trimmed mostly crowd noise. I didn't want to alter Jerry Lawler and Jim Ross's commentary because it was really, really powerful. And I'll tell you something else that I really enjoyed about this audio. And when we watch wrestling on television or even in a computer screen, you know, you're sitting on your desk, you're sitting on your couch, you're laying in bed, you're not glued where your eyes are within six inches of the TV. You'll go fucking blind. Your eyes will be all fucked up. Nobody watches TV that close. When you listen to the audio, there's a lot of little audio in the background. Terry Funk speaking, the doctors around mankind. There's little things that you don't pick up when you watch this on TV. So I really enjoyed this audio tremendously, and I hope you do as well. Here is a majority of how it went down this week in 1998, Mankind versus Undertaker, Hell in a Cell. It is a perverse, vile, diabolical structure. Satanic. Hellish. It will absolutely be unforgiving as this as this night progresses. Wow. It, it is custom built for injury. It may be the last structure that the Undertaker and mankind stand in before they arrive at Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh. And I hope and I pray that that does not happen. This match has so much riding on it, JR that the loser may not even stop at the hospital. They may go straight to the morgue. Well, let's uh, hope it isn't that drastic, King, obviously. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest is the Hell in the Cell match. JR, what's, what's he got there? Introducing the participants. First, weighing 287 pounds. was born Mick Foley on Long Island, New York. His manifestations as Dude Love and Cactus Jack are infamous, but none are more deranged than mankind. His scarred body, he's missing half an ear. Look at this. He says when he gets inside the steel, he will feel at home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. Can you imagine what this human being will do to himself? Oh, that's what's great about this, Jerry. That's what's great. I'm, I'm telling you, I've watched this guy. I've competed against this guy. It's like, especially when you're in there in the ring against him, all of a sudden you start thinking, nothing that I do hurts this guy. This guy feels no pain, or if he feels pain, he enjoys it. Look! Just do that chair on top of the cage. What is he doing? Oh, he's, he's, cl- cl- he's Mankind is climbing 
the cage. Saying? You're supposed to start out inside the cage, isn't he? And yeah, The Undertaker's not even been introduced. What's he doing? Well, he's trying to get up to the top of the cage. Well, I'd see that, but for what? I, uh, he's not very logical. I mean, I, he needs therapy. Who knows what he's thinking? God only knows. Of all the things he's lost, I think he misses his mind the most. Uh-oh, here we go! Oh my God! Look out! Oh, oh, 
it out here, really. I mean it. You need some help. My God. This I, is over. I cannot believe this. This is over just, right here. I cannot believe. I that, that, It's over. That cage is 16 feet high. And uh, look at this, folks. Just listen. Unbelievable. My God. Un Look at this, folks. Well, we got our, our Spanish announce team are down. We need doctors out here. If somebody can get off their butt in the back and get some people out here. Look at mankind is moving. There's Terry Funk. And we all know that Terry Funk and, and, and mankind professionally have not got along. But there's still got to be a bomb there. There's got to be bones broken. Dr. Uh, Francois Petit is out here. The Undertaker is still on top. The Lord of Darkness has ruled. This, this may be the shortest Hell in the Cell match that we have ever had. But without a doubt, the most violent. Get some hey, hey. Hey, can you help these guys right here? He says it's his shoulder. I don't uh, quite know how to approach this. This uh, this match could be over. We need some towels, guys. Well, Vince McMahon is out here, and Commissioner Slaughter. Folks, we apologize. This match has stopped dead in its tracks. And uh, we'll take another look at it here. This is beyond belief. Oh, oh, there's oh. no, there's no net. And somebody again, you know, oh yeah, they know how to fall. Look at that, look at this. Give me a break. We gotta get some action. We got a lot of people hurt here. And as professionally, the robbery between Terry Funk and, and uh, Mick Foley or any other character. Look at the race in the cage and the Undertaker's still on top. This match is maybe over, I'm telling you. Why is the cage raging? Do they realize the Undertaker is still on top of the cage? They're raising the cage with the Undertaker still on top. What? And the EMTs now are bringing a, 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 a stretcher here. But look up there, JR. The cage is still going up to the... Well, I think they've raised the cage somewhat oh, okay. so that we can uh, get the uh, the EMTs there with a stretcher. Yeah. And, what about these guys? Yeah, the, the, Wait, now the cage is coming back down. They got, I guess they got to get the Undertaker off of the top of this cage. So, man, look out. Undertaker is coming down. He's climbing down before the cage is even on the ground. He's coming down on our side, King. Yeah, I'm out of here. Might not be a bad idea for you to... And this is... Uh, but the bigger story is there in the aisleway.
again if this match has ended we apologize i have never how do you why do you apologize for that well I that mean, was the, the fans i've never seen anything like that in my life well i'm not yeah fine but people were expecting a hell in a cell match look, look. and look at you're kidding how me in the hell is he standing oh my god and look at this he's got a smile on his face for god's sakes are you kidding me he wants to go back up uh-uh man Kane is going back up no way and so is the undertaker no way how can he climb how can his body oh my god the undertaker's got the chair this is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing here. Oh, a headbutt by The Undertaker and a right hand. Now if there's a, if he throws him up on the other side, there's, Good God, good God. That's it, he's dead. Well, somebody stop the damn match. Enough's enough. He's broken in half. And the Undertaker locks it. But I think enough is enough. Oh my God, look at this. The Undertaker is still coming down. Stop him. The Undertaker coming. Stop him. And Mr. Slaughter, Terry Funk, and you see that from a television perspective. Oh! Now Terry Funk trying to help Nick Foley. And Terry gets a choke slam for his trouble. Somebody stop him! Terry Funk, he just got choke slammed out of his shoes, it looked like. Watch this. My God! That ring is like concrete. He's either crazy as hell, or he's the toughest sob that I have ever, I've ever seen How? in this sort of environment. How is he still standing up? I don't have a damn clue. There's shoes, there's chairs, there's caps, there's a cage hanging, and there's a human being in there that is unbelievably indestructible. I never thought I would say that about somebody, but this guy is indestructible. What more can you do to a human being? Oh, Nick, uh, mankind bleeding. He may have internal injuries. Oh, he's in got to have internal Got to have internal injuries right here. My God, this has just gone too far. Well, stop it. And, oh. Jeez. He's still mounting an offense, and they're locking these guys inside there. Now who's, who made that ruling? Why don't you just let him? Oh, my. Oh. And he's smiling. Uh -oh. He is smiling. You had to know this. You had to know that it was going to be something like this. I mean, you knew these guys wanted to get at each other in the worst way, but I never dreamed it would be this kind of stuff. Oh. I don't know if a tooth. Went through uh, his lip, did mankind, and he bit his tongue. His left arm is, is, is dangling. I think that the blood that's coming out of his mouth is coming up from inside him. It's internal bleeding. I mean, this man weighs 
300 pounds, and he fell over 16 feet twice. And you can hear the steel being moved around. And he wants more. He can't, he can't even lift it. Uh -oh. His shoulder gave out. He couldn't even lift it. His shoulder's probably broken. And he's smiling about it. What is that sticking out of his nose? are unexplainable. What has come over the Undertaker? I mean, he attacks Paul Bearer. He goes to Paul Bearer's house. He breaks and enters, and he destroys Paul Bearer. Look at this! Whoa, he missed him! Undertaker tried that missile-like dive and found nothing but the steel that time. Mankind almost seemingly just passed out. The Undertaker was in midair and couldn't change direction, obviously. Mankind or Mick Foley, whatever you want to call him. His, his shoulder's got to be separated at the least. Oh, I think Undertaker's busted. Undertaker just tastes the steel, and it doesn't taste good. Oh, one more time, right in that. Oh, he's cut. Undertaker's been lacerated. Oh, look at this. JR, this is hell in a cell, and it's not a pretty sight. We knew it was going to be like this. This is, uh, they're in hell. Undertaker and Mankind are in hell. Hell is in Pittsburgh tonight in this match. They're both in hell, you're right, but both of these men have claimed to like it in hell. That chair's in the ring. Mankind going for a power And did you hear the, the crack of the Undertaker's skull on that chair? Or is that two? Stop! Two and a half. He's got, what is that out of his nose? Something has, uh, probably a piece of that wooden table that he landed on, it probably pierced right through his nose. Maybe a tooth? Oh God, you don't think. What's he got now, uh-oh. He went under the ring and get something. I, what is it? A sack. Some sort of bag or something. He got in that. Goddess. What is that? Thumbtacks. Uh-uh. Thumbtacks. My God. This is off the page. Thumbtacks. He's fixing to send the Undertaker to hell and back. If he knocks him down on that. Right hands, Undertaker reeling here. Big punch coming. Uh -oh. No way. Undertaker tried to choke slam. Mankind stopped it. Put right to the face though by the Phenom. Oh, he got him. Mandible claw. Mandible claw. Mankind's got the mandible claw on the Undertaker. He's gonna try to throw the Undertaker right onto those those tacks. Undertaker is fading. No one has ever had the one loss record against the Undertaker as mankind has earned. And some of them, with that very move, the mandible claw. Thumbtacks. Oh, man. 
He's sick. He's literally sick. Undertaker is fainting. Referee Tim White. Two. We'll check it one more time. And uh, Undertaker. Ah. My God, I've never ever seen anything like this. He is Undertaker has got me in combat on his back now. Wait a minute. No, you. He's near those tacks. Don't tell me. No. No. Remember, there were other matches on the card that night. Ken Shamrock won King of the Ring. And Steve Austin lost the WWF Heavyweight Championship to Kane in the first blood match. Now, you know, does anybody remember what Kane was supposed to do if he lost that match? He was supposed to set himself on fire. 
But I think a lot of people forget Kane's title reign was one day. You know, he would lose the title back to Steve Austin the following day on Monday Night Raw. Now, if you watch the match again, Steve Austin had a staph infection in his elbow, so it was heavily, heavily wrapped. But, you know, you look back on it, and Kane's title reign was one day. And I don't remember at the time WWF getting slack for doing a title change just for one day. But it was what it was. And I'll tell you another thing that happened this week in 1998. Match a lot of people probably don't even know ever took place. You know, back in the middle to late 90s, you had Memphis Power Pro Wrestling. It was located in Memphis, Tennessee. It was run by Randy Hales. And it was a sort of a farm system, a feeder system for WWF. You go back and you look at the roster that worked um, Power Pro at that time, Kurt Angle, uh, Albert, Jerry Lawler, I mean, The Rock. You go down the list. I mean, the, the Road Wars. This promotion had some big-time matches on it. And the same week where Kane won the WWF title against Steve Austin and King of the Ring, a couple of days before, he wrestled for Power Pro in front of about 3,000 plus, wrestled Jerry Lawler, and I think Kane won by disqualification. And uh, if you actually look at the footage online, they do a little censored thing because they try to play off that Miss Kitty, Stacy Carter, the cat, that her, her tits came out and stuff like that. But it's a match I think a lot of people aren't aware of uh, that took place. Kane wrestling Jerry Lawler for Memphis Powell Pro just a couple of days before King of the Ring. So it's pretty cool if you actually want to go check it out. And I should also mention mention this as well. Um, 1998, around this time, we had Steve Carino and Reckless Youth, I think, getting tryout matches for WWF. Obviously, you know, Steve Carino didn't end up going to WWF. He would ultimately go to ECW. It's still a big deal. And wrapping up, 1998 this week, we had the beginning of something. And it's funny because, sure, it has gotten criticism over the years because having wrestlers working as boxers uh, was probably not a smart idea overall. But you did have wrestlers who wanted to take part of this. And I think now because the in thing to do is to criticize anything that Vince Russo has ever done in wrestling, that some people go out of their way to really shit on the brawl for it all. Personally, I actually liked a lot of it at the time. It was different. It was cool to see wrestlers legitimately get punched in the face sometimes. Of course, we had a lot of surprises. I think Dr. Death, Steve Williams, was WWF's choice to win the whole thing. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. Uh, Bart Gunn, I think, really shined from this, his match with Butterbean was less to be desired. But overall, I thought Brawl for It All was an interesting concept. And the sad thing about it is you will see a lot of people over the years saying, uh, oh, bring it back, bring it back. Wouldn't it be cool to bring it back? Oh, let's see Roman Reigns get punched in the face 50 times. I don't know if it'll ever be brought back, to be honest with you. I think we may get a match once in a while, that might have a, a very, you know, boxing or UFC-like stipulation to it. 
But as far as the tournament, I don't think that's going to happen ever again like this. It would be interesting if they ever did. But this week in 1998, we had the beginning of the brawl for it all. The tournament actually started this week in 1998. If you actually do some research on it, it's very, very interesting to see you know, what happened with some people. And I think a lot of people don't realize that Savio Vega never worked for WWF again after the brawl for it all. He got injured in it. You had Dan Severn pull himself out of it. You have other people who have claimed injuries, a few other things, tidbits here and there. It's very, very interesting to look into if you decide to do so. 1999, Paul Heyman announces that ECW signed a three-year deal with TNN. Unfortunately, next week, give you a little heads up now, one year later, things would backfire tremendously for ECW and TNN. Um, at that time, you had WWE in a lawsuit with USA Network, WWE looking to take their footage elsewhere, take their product elsewhere, I should say, and ultimately they would go to TNN, which left ECW without a home. We'll get into that next week, but this week in 1999, ECW signed a three-year deal with TNN. And, you know, it's it's a real fucking shame when you look back on it. I mean, I, I it's, believe it or not, I actually remember watching the first ever episode. I remember where I was. I thought it was cool. You know, seeing the ratings hover around a 1.0 the whole time was a little bit concerning, but I still thought it was good enough. It was frustrating to see TNN really not publicize ECW all that much. And I did watch some other shows on TNN at the time. And I don't recall other than maybe one or two times ever seeing an ECW commercial. In fact, I remember one time, you know, with my girlfriend at the time saying, honey, look, ECW commercial. It was just like so out of the ordinary. And TNN was, you would think that they would push their shows a little bit more. I remember Roller Jam being shoved down a fucking throat over and over and over again. But it, that deal all started this week, 1999. That same week, this same week in 99, ECW signed a deal with Pioneer Home Video to release some ECW compilations and some events on VHS. I actually still have a ton of mine, uh, the DVDs that came out. Remember the Cactus Jack one, the Dudleys. They had a few events as well. It was pretty cool. And at the time, I, re I, I haven't watched any of them in years, but I don't remember music being edited out. So I think that could be one of the problems that ECW had at that time. So some other moments that went down in 1999. Hardys defeated Farouk and Bradshaw to win the tag titles. So the era of the Hardys. I mean, they were tremendously popular at the time. But as far as champions go, this was a very important moment in their careers. And I still remember that night on Raw. Um, in fact, that night on Raw is obviously one for the record books. Steve Austin in the main event. And we're going to go back and forth a little bit with this week because Raw took place after King of the Ring and blah, 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 blah. But Steve Austin defeated Undertaker on Raw for the WWF title, became the champion. That match scored a 9.5 rating. Everybody always thinks about The Rock and Mick Foley. This is your life. They did an 8.4 that match scored a 9.5 rating. Almost 11 million viewers watched that match. How insane was it? And you had WCW going against Raw that night as well. 
The overall rating for that night, Raw defeated Nitro 6.8 to 3.6. It's fucking crazy. I remember, you know, doing a hotline at that time and talking about how insane it was that wrestling was doing tens and even higher than tens combined as far as ratings go. It was a very big night for pro wrestling, just in as overall. And this week as well, WWF has, uh, announced that they had signed Chris Jericho to a multi-year contract. So we had some very important moments go down this week. Now we get to King of the Ring, which had taken place the night before. Shane McMahon and Vince McMahon defeated Steve Austin in a handicap ladder match for complete ownership of the WWF. A couple of days before, Vince McMahon was on Conan O'Brien hyping up King of the Ring. And I have that interview segment here. You look back on it, I mean, you know, you don't see, you know, the figures that Conan was playing with. But when you listen to the audio, you know, I'm a little surprised that Vince McMahon didn't get a little bit ticked off at Conan. It seemed like Conan, look, these late night commentators will always crack wise-ass jokes. I mean, obviously, that's what they do. But I don't know. The way that they ha he handled Vince McMahon, some of it I didn't like. But overall, I thought Vince did a good job. So here you go. Vince McMahon, Conan O'Brien, this week in 1999. Please welcome Vince McMahon. Oh, there is so much to talk about. Vince, first of all, we were, we, I've been watching you for a while. Yeah. And I am, I, your look of shock and horror when you hear that Stone Cold Steve Austin is in the building yeah. is the greatest look of shock I've ever seen in film, on television. You know what we're talking about when you think that you've won and then you hear that music, that look of absolute horror. I the one of, yeah, I, I think I know the look. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I, and what I love about that is that you have... He's not here, is he? <laughs> yes, he is. He's coming out right now. No, no. <laughs> you just have to do that sometimes for like 10 minutes uh, while he makes no, his way into really. the it's building. No, not really. It's pretty natural, actually. Oh, really? It's yeah. just, you're, very, you're that scared. I said it was pretty natural. Oh, all right. Well, let's talk about uh, something that worried me a little bit, which is... I was looking at all the merchandise that uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin has. Yes, he has and quite a he bit. he has all this amazing stuff. He's got this thing where the eyes move. He's got a straw. He's got a car where he's naked driving it. <laughs> he's got videotapes. He's got action figures. There's a rug, a Stone Cold Steve Austin. <laughs> Have you seen this rug? He has a rug, actually, right here, which I actually have in my room, and it's very cool. <laughs> there it is. And then we come to you. This is your action figure. A guy... <laughs> this is a guy kids really want to play with. Oh, absolutely. I'll get you with my microphone. I might announce something bad about you. Everyone else has kung fu grip. Everybody else shoots their stuff. And look at you right there. I'll say something pretty nasty. That's pretty pathetic. Can't you get a better action figure? Uh, that's pretty realistic, actually. <laughs>
Well, let's talk about the, uh, the wrestling world, because obviously that's where the money is these days. Is there any way, because we're on a 12.30 night, say that I, for example, could fit into the wrestling world, if I were interested? And if there was a, is there anything at all, any way that you could seem, obviously, probably not a wrestler, don't have the physique, but is there something else uh, I could do? Definitely a manager. A manager? Yeah, sure. Okay. Put a little fez or a little dunce cap on or something like that. <laughs> I, you know, I think you'd fit right in, but you'd need, you know, to, like take one for the home team on occasion and right. learn to distract WWF officials, which is not too difficult, but I'm sure you could handle that. But you'd, you'd need to manage someone who... Uh, well, someone of greatness. I mean, someone of your magnitude coming right. into the World Wrestling Federation that, like, handpicks someone. Right. You know, a, a really great athlete. Is there anyone here you think could handle it? Um. <laughs> I think Andy is, is, is you know, I mean, <laughs> That's the look. <laughs> I mean, that was great. How much would people pay on pay-per-view if Conan's managing and, and, and you're actually wrestling? Right. What would people pay to see you, like, you know, in a loincloth kind of like? <laughs> I've given well, that some thought. It's been a long time since I got paid to be in a loincloth. <laughs> I got a little something back here. That might you brought your own merchandise? Well, you know, it's like you have to be prepared. Now, what if... We would call Andy Cheeks. That's pretty menacing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you have those big hands yeah. out there, you know. You get to I mean, keep you know? that shirt now. Yeah, right. Yeah. Hear my cheeks. <laughs> All right. As long as I can get body slammed into the Spanish language broadcast. <laughs> I'm sure we can handle that. All right. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, uh, let's talk, tell us a little bit about the match that's coming up. This is you and your son versus yes. Stone Cold. And what's at stake here? Uh, really, it's kind of like all the marbles kind of a thing. It's Vince McMahon and Shane McMahon. Two McMahons can beat one Austin any day of the week, we hope. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll find out this Sunday. It's, it's a ladder match. You see, you take the stock certificates that we own, and you take Stone Cold's title as CEO, and you sort of put it in a, a briefcase and put it on the skyhook somewhere above the ring mm -hmm. and the it's real simple whoever gets the briefcase first uh, wins all the goods and complete control of the world wrestling federation so it's all on the line is what you're saying you could lose it's everything all on the line all right that was very convincing uh, right, right. Thank you. they didn't believe me but when you did it you know right yeah uh, now why not since you own the company right it's your company why not fire Stone Cold and just make yourself champion and then rehire. Actually, I've tried firing Stone Cold, but that doesn't work. Uh, I, as far as me being a champion, I don't think I'm really cut out to, to carry that kind of responsibility. You don't think you could do it? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. I, not even for a day. It would just you know, see. We have something in the World Wrestling Federation known as credibility. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, I don't think that would be too credible. No, I don't think so. Let's talk about your, uh, someone who you're not too pleased with, a real-life foe, oh. Ted Turner. Oh. Ted Turner, of course, has the uh, rival right. uh, wrestling organization. Well, he competes with you, and you don't right. like the man. No, I really don't, but, you know, my mom once told me, <laughs> you know, mom said that if you can't say anything nice about someone, don't say anything at all, so all I'll say no, about... No, she said hit them with a collapsible chair. <laughs> <laughs> all I'll say about... 
Ted, he's a son of a bitch. You know what I mean? <laughs> Other than that, he's probably not a bad guy, but, you know, don't like him at all. <laughs> okay. Matter but seriously, fact, how do you feel about I it? I can't stand the son of a bitch. Stop saying that. Well, <laughs> this isn't our Cinemax special, my oh, friend. Now, um, I thought it was in the World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> no, no. Just because a poop dog was on earlier doesn't mean you have the license. The, uh... Ted Turner has, a, has an action figure. <laughs> you should see his. Yeah, I should imagine. Yeah. It takes um, lithium all day long, you know. That's a lawsuit! Yeah, another lawsuit. <laughs> Just what I'm looking for. Yeah, right. Let's see your look of fear when that lawsuit comes around. He can afford some lawyers. Uh, I've been told that. Yeah. Uh, King of the Ring is right. available this Sunday on pay-per-view. Indeed. And uh, probably turn a profit, I'm betting. I'm hoping that it just might. Yeah, might. you just might squeak by. Yeah, you know, we you might. You pulled up in a gold car to come to our show. Uh, but, uh, it was Vince... rusty, actually. Yeah, right, right. Vince McMahon, uh, get a new action figure, but thank you very much for coming Thanks, by. Thanks, everybody. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick around. Now, as I've said before, unfortunately, not everything could make the cut for these shows. Otherwise, it would be eight-hour episodes. But if you want to go check it out, you can go on YouTube. Video Motion has it as well. Uh, this week in 99 as well, Hulk Hogan was on Larry King Live. And during an interview, unfortunately, Hulk Hogan used the word Polak and uh, got a lot of heat for it. Nobody brings it up these days. You would think with you know some of the controversy with Hulk Hogan and some of the words he said... You know, this is not the first time, but if you want, for nostalgic purposes, just go search online. Larry King, live, Hulk Hogan, 1999, you'll see it. 2000, this week in history, King of the Ring, Kurt Angle defeated Rikishi to win the tournament. As you could see over the last two weeks, this week and next week as well, a lot of King of the Rings, if not all of them, all took place around this time during the year. It's a pretty big deal. Monday Night Raw. At this time, Mick Foley's starting to wind down his in-ring career a little bit, let him rest, recover from injuries built up over the years. Yes, he wrestled for many years after, but it was this week in 2000 that Shawn Michaels brought out Mick Foley and introduced him as the new commissioner of the WWF. So it was a pretty uh, cool moment at the time. He had the very short hair, I remember, and uh, I thought it was really good. I uh, He had a lot of comedic moments that I know a lot of people will remember. Now, as I said earlier, in 1999 this week, ECW signed the deal with TNN. It's supposed to be for three years. Well, next week, we talk about that a little bit further. But we could give the little precursor now. This week in 2000, in Delaware court, the uh, court ruled in favor for the WWF and Viacom in the lawsuit filed by the USA Network. This basically gave WWE the go-ahead to work out a deal with TNN. So next week we get into the unfortunate news with ECW and TNN, but it started this week in 2000. Bull started rolling, you know, against ECW in the beginning of the end. Started this week. And I think it's something that a lot of people forget. That around this time, there was a lot of talk that ECW would possibly negotiate with the USA Network. USA Network was losing WWF programming. Did they still want to have wrestling? So a lot of talk, a lot of rumors was that ECW was going to negotiate a deal with USA Network since WWF was leaving the network. Unfortunately, 
We did not see that happen. There were rumors also at this time that Fox had talked to both ECW and WCW, but I really never saw much develop from that. Don't even know if it's true. So happened this week in 2000. 2001, Linda McMahon on Monday Night Raw announces that the upcoming fully loaded pay-per-view in July would get a new name, Facelift. They were going to call it now Invasion. It was going to be WCW versus WWF. And that same night, we had the first ever WCW match take place in WWF. Booker T versus Buff Bagwell. I don't need to discuss this match. I know almost everybody out there has seen it. This match basically destroyed any chance of WCW being a, an active promotion under the WWF banner. You look back on it, why would you destroy the whole, you know, the idea of a new the, the new WCW because of one match? Could have done it differently. Could have tried different things. But rather than play the match, I was looking at different interviews of what people have said over the years about this time, WCW invading WWF storyline. Now, out of all of the interviews that I've checked out, the one that I enjoyed the most that I think you will as well is Lance Storm. Lance Storm talking about this particular match, the storyline at the time, what he feels WWF planned on doing all along. And a lot of people may not know that they originally were going to go with Booker T versus Lance Storm that night. And they decided to go with Bagwell instead. So here you go. I think this might be, I don't know if this is Cyrus's podcast or Lance Storm's, but it's excellent. So here is Lance Storm in his own words, looking back at 2001, the uh, invasion and more specific Booker T versus Buff Bagwell that took place this week in 01. The Booker T and Buff Bagwell, which was from the July 2nd of 2001. It was the main event of Raw and was largely considered a gigantic failure. It was in Seattle or Tacoma, I don't remember which, but it was monumental in its failure. The thing that I thought was amazing, because I was watching a little bit of the Raw before it started, when they got ready to sign over to the WCW main event, Jim Ross and Paul Heyman were on commentary and pretty much washed their hands of it and said that uh, we're signing off here, don't blame us, don't blame uh, WWF, this is WCW, so what you get next is on them. And it really felt like WWF was planning this to fail and they had no interest in it succeeding because just the, this isn't our fault, here you go. And we got uh, Scott Hudson and, and Arn Anderson on commentary. We had Stacy Keebler as the guest ring announcer. And they did WCW ring aprons. They had uh, Shane McMahon out to do the intros. And they made this as much WCW as they could. And we got Buff Bagwell versus Booker T for the WCW world title. Yeah, who booked that? (laughs) Well, that's the interesting thing in that uh, I remember Jericho was in on the production meeting or snooped on the production meeting. And that afternoon, they were debating on whether they were going to do Booker and Buff or Booker and me. Because two weeks prior to this on the house show loops, Booker and Buff did the house show loops with WWF, and the matches were generally considered not very good. 
And the weekend before this Monday Night Raw, I did host shows with Booker T and had matches that were largely considered good. So that afternoon, they were like, Lance and Booker have better matches. Why don't we go with them? And the final call was Vince said, no, Book, uh, Buff is the bigger WCW name. We're going with star power. So let's send out Buff Bagwell and Booker T for this match. So that's what they went with. Um, now, to be honest, I didn't think Scott Hudson and Arn Anderson were good on commentary. They had a non-finish. This match had bigger problems than just the match itself. But looking back with the speed and the work rate of 2001, this match was slow. Buff blew up. And even at the start watching it, it's like the first move of the match, Buff hits a double-arm DDT that means nothing, and then they just get up and start running more spots. It's like, this was really bad. Oh, yeah. No, I, I just, to me, when I looked at it, Buff, to me, looked very heavy, uh, muscular-wise and even a little bit thick. And I thought, man, he, he he's probably going to blow up, and I think that's exactly what happened here. We had been off for about a month now, and WWE had encouraged a lot of us to stay active. I had done you know one show for you, and I had done four Stampede shows, so I had stayed in shape. But Buff, I think, had just hit the gym and put on some mass. So he was blowing up pretty quick in this. Uh, at one point, you can actually hear Booker yelling at him to get up. But as soon as he cuts Bu uh, Booker off, he pretty much goes right into a rear chin lock. And in 2001, nobody was grabbing holds because everybody was paranoid that you'd be switching channels. So he's got the chin lock on. The crowd's chanting boring. At one point, the crowd's chanting, this match sucks. And you can just see him breathing heavy. And it's like Book tries to get up to get the action moving. And Buff pulls him back down by the hair. And it's just, it's really slow. It's, again, a WWE audience watching WCW. The commentary is lacking in energy. This match was just dying a death out there. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it, to me, the interesting thing was it. I had heard about this match. I'd never seen it look that bad to me. Um, you know, like, I guess I was expecting a complete disaster, and it was just kind of a mini disaster. Yeah, it was just subpar. And, and that's the thing. It's like, go back and watch, you know, Angle and Austin and Rock and Jericho and all the guys they had in WWF at that time that were firing on all cylinders and really working at a fast, high pace. And this was just lazy. And it was just slow, and it's just not what they were expecting. And when it is your first chance to make a first impression, it was not a good one on television. And a story I forgot I was going to mention, before the show, Pat Patterson was the agent, and he had actually told them both, it's like, look, this isn't a WCW town. Uh, you may not get a big, strong reaction. Don't worry about it. This is a WWE's, you know, town. And Buffalo, no, 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 Pat, you don't understand. I'm a huge star. When I go through that curtain, there's going to be a big pop. And that did not sit too well with Pat, and it didn't end up to be true. And this match just didn't fare well. And, you know, they really, they just did some stuff back and forth. No build, no real near falls, no real comeback. And then Book just hit the axe kick, and then we got a run in from Austin and Angle, and it was just, it just didn't feel like this was a big-time deal. And, and from all accounts, this was the night right after this match that Vince went, nope, I'm pulling the plug on this invasion, that they were building towards trying to actually have, I think WCW was going to win a bit of a battle and get Monday Night Raw. 
and WWE was going to get SmackDown, and they were working on keeping the brand separate and doing something. And this match soured Vince enough that he went, no, we can't run with this as a show, and pretty much at that point decided we're going to end the invasion. Seems almost like it was a self-fulfilling prophecy to me, if you ask my opinion. Yeah, I, I think, too. I, I think when he made the decision to go with Buff, maybe deep down he wanted WCW to fail. And I know when I was there in the invasion, there'd be times where, you know, the creative people, everyone would be talking, and it's, you know, the, the WCW guys will do this, and it's like, it felt like they still thought we were the adversary, that it didn't feel like we were on the same team when we were. And I think probably on some level, Vince battled WCW for so long that he just couldn't, in his own mind, allow it to succeed, even if he owned it. Yeah, it's unfortunate because I think it could have been done so much better, and and it it really wouldn't have been a hard. But it's almost like you know you want to prove you were right all along, and I guess that's what it is. Yep. And then the the following day on SmackDown was <laughs> when the uh, it all came home to roost because. Buff tried to defend the match the next day. He went home and watched it and was trying to convince everybody, you know, I watched it. It just wasn't that bad. And once the office has decided it is, you can't argue that point where Booker was just like, yep, it was sucked. I'm sorry. And he tried to dump a lot of it on Buff. And I think Buff deserved it because he just wasn't, I don't think he had the cardio to go. But that night they had booked a run-in. Buff was involved in a match and there's going to be the big mass run-in. And as we're all standing backstage in the run in, all of the WCW guys are supposed to bail out except for Buff. He's going to get caught in the ring and he's got to take a power bomb from John, uh, Layfield, APA, and then a spine buster from Rom's, Ron Simmons. And as we're standing behind the curtain ready to go out, Ron and John walk up and just look at us and say, if that son of a bitch tries to run, you better throw him back. And it was just one of those moments where. We had to make the decision, are we Team Buff or are we Team WWE? And pretty much everybody behind the curtain, because Buff had so much heat with everybody, at that point went, don't worry, we'll throw him back in. And he didn't run on the first one, but after he took the powerbomb from John, he laid there and sold like he was hurt and didn't want to get up. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It's like he wasn't feeding up, and Ron just stood over with, somebody get that son of a bitch up. And it's just like, oh, God, Buff, you should have just got up. So Ron picked him up and gave him that spine buster that hurts at the best of times because Ron is so goddamn strong. And I think Buff sold a neck injury after that, and I don't think he lasted much longer. No, which is too bad because I always used to think that the whole Buff Bagwell thing, it was exactly the type of character that should get over with Vince. But I thought the same thing of the Disco Inferno and Mark Merrow, and those didn't work out either. (laughs) No, Mark Merrow didn't. Uh, They were pushing him like the next Randy Savage, and just something didn't work. I, I, I think it's probably that situation where if it's not Vince's idea, he doesn't want to go with it. But Buff had, you know, bigger heats. He no showed the next, uh, loop of house shows. And that was pretty much it for him. But again, had they gone with me and Booker, who knows what would have been different? I, I tend to think nothing would have been different. I think the writing was on the wall for WCW, but I know Jericho on occasion jokes that if they'd have gone with me and Booker instead, the whole invasion might have been different. Uh, it might have lasted a couple of weeks longer before they gave up on it. 2002, sad news we heard at that time, Bret Hart had suffered a stroke. He was riding his bike at the time, and unfortunately, a blood clot had reached his brain. 
He had fallen. He was not wearing a helmet. He had originally lost feeling on the left side of his body. And he would go through a massive amount of physical therapy. I don't think anybody out there really has any clue of how much physical therapy Bret Hart went through. Just to not only learn how to walk again, but to talk. And he would recover. And we did see him return to a WWF ring, you know, seven, eight years later. So, you know, but it was said, it was this week in O2 that we learned about that. Match that took place this week as well. Two of them we got to talk about. First, we'll talk about Raw. Undertaker took on Jeff Hardy to retain the undisputed WWE Championship. A lot of people consider this match as one of the greatest matches ever to take place on Monday Night Raw. Jeff Hardy versus Undertaker. And it was really cool at the end of the match to see Undertaker show respect to Jeff Hardy. Um, it, It was an awesome match. I originally was going to share the audio here, but because it's a ladder match and the way it went down, you got to watch it to really enjoy it. And just to understand why this is one of the greatest matches ever to take place on Monday Night Raw. And, you know, look, Monday Night Raw has had well over a thousand episodes. It is a memorable match. Another memorable match. And this one I'm going to share with you right now took place on SmackDown. Now, People always remember this match because of a quick opening promo, an exchange that happened between two people. I always remember this night because it was the debut of a particular wrestler. The audio, the verbal exchange that they had in the beginning of the match. After the match, Undertaker once again showing respect in the locker room to this person who made his debut. But I always remember the front row or the second row. There was a guy that had a sign that said, Austin 316 says, I just beat my wife. Because this was the time, if you remember, what, two weeks ago, we talked about Steve Austin walking out of WWE, not wanting to face Brock Lesnar a week before King of the Ring on Raw. And a lot of people, I don't think, realized that it was that same period that not only did he walk out, but he had the incident with Deborah, where the cops showed up and she had bruises on her face and welts and Steve Austin went on the lam. So this all went down for a very short period of time. I'm a little surprised that WWF did not take that sign away and quick, especially when you realize in the annals of history that they always have to go to this original match to show whenever you want to highlight the career of John Cena. Who in the hell are you? I'm John Cena. John Cena, huh? Well, you tell me, what is the one quality that you possess that makes you think that you can walk out here and come into the ring and face the very best in the business? Ruthless aggression. Well, I guess Mr. McMahon's... Whoa! Oh, man! Kurt Angle's been taken off guard, and this kid is going right after Kurt Angle. I guess Mr. McMahon's speech on Raw inspired young John Cena. Mr. McMahon told these young... 
Impact Superstars to seize the opportunity, and this is what Cena is trying to do tonight against Angle. Cena's bringing it to Kurt. Kurt, look at that Impact body drop by Cena to Kurt Angle in a clothesline. And another one. Ruthless aggression from Cena to Angle early on. Looks like Cena's got that aggression part down pat. This Cena is a rookie. He's a prospect here at World Wrestling Entertainment. Covered, hook of the leg, does he have it? And Kurt Angle kicks out. Check out the first clothesline task. Wow, just cleaning Angle's clock. Cena's one of the kids in the, in the World Wrestling Entertainment who basically tasked, holds the season up. Oh, look at Kurt Angle, there he is. a cat. That's the, the end lock. That's the end of it, goodbye. No! And Cena countered. I guess Cena had Angle, Angle out scouting on the German. And a German suplex from Kurt Angle to John Cena. This guy looks good. I mean, Cena, in my view, it seems like he had Angle scouted. We don't know a lot about John, but we've just seen a lot of him. We've heard a little bit about Cena, and one of the young talents working their way through the system, and Kurt Angle now putting on a clinic for the rookie Cena. This might be the end coming up right now. I mean, this guy Cena, John Cena, Kurt Angle off guard, and now Kurt Angle's gonna pick him apart. Do you have to question Cena's logic, Taz? I mean, you only have one chance to make your first impression. Oh, and is Kurt Angle the person you want to make that impression against? Because Angle's taking it to him right now. Well, John Cena has nothing to lose, in my opinion. I mean, he comes out and gets an opportunity from Kurt Angle. Look at this! Look at this counter! Oh, look at the counter! He's got Angle! He's got it! No, and it kicked out! This kid has got the guts! He certainly has a will to win, as he's demonstrated here. Miss McMahon said it from day one. Opportunity's always there in the WWE. And John Cena, God bless him, he stepped up to the plate. But it might be a little too much dealing with Kurt Angle. And Kurt Angle begins the trash talking to Cena. Perhaps Angle took Cena a bit lightly in the early going to this matchup, and now it may be punishment time for the youngster. John Cena seems he looks like he's in great condition. Oh, wow, look at that Kurt Angle, the man who made Hollywood Hulk, Hulk Hogan tap to the ankle lock, tap out for the first time in Hogan's career at King of the Ring Sunday. Off the suplex, the hook of the leg on Cena. And Cena got the shoulder up. John Cena's tough. He looks tough early on right here. And Kurt Angle, I thought I, I saw it. Oh, a weird look in his eyes. Look to be a bit perplexed. I don't think I've ever seen that from Angle. Well, look at his front face lock right here by Kurt Angle, wearing down John Cena. You got to figure Cena's nervous out here, which is, you know, takes your, your endurance away from you. This front headlock just cutting the blood off the, the Cena's brain. And when Angle locks the front headlock. You can choke out with it. It's a punishing move, is what you're saying. Absolutely. A front face lock is, is a fundamental move, but yet extremely dangerous, dangerous, especially for the guy like Kurt Angle. We'll Cena trying to make it to his feet, trying to get some sort of leverage on Kurt Angle. He's got over under. Angle's got an under. Oh, look at Angle's in trouble. Oh, and what a desperation counter by John Cena. And you can feel the crowd starting to get with the kid a little bit, Taz. Yeah, but this crowd may be starting to believe that Cena, Cena has a real chance in this matchup. But, but Cena's got to believe it. John Cena's got to be positive about himself that he can turn out, take out Kurt Angle. But Cena got a lot taken out of him by that front face lock by Kurt. I think Cena does believe he can beat Angle. That's why he's out here. That's why he's battling. He's battling it out against a world-class athlete. I agree with you. He is. I just think he might be a little of a magic. Well, let's face it. Oh, big knockdown by Cena to Kurt Angle. This guy looks great, though. He got to face and it. And Kurt Angle is really. Wow! The cover. He's got him. He's got him. Cena, this guy looks awesome. And Kurt Angle.
Angle with a rake of the eyes. That is all desperation for Angle. Angle slam, look at this. Went for the Angle slam. Cena counter, kick to the midsection. Oh, oh, Angle, cover him, cover him. He's got him this time. Got him, King. Outside leg hooked in Angle. Got the shoulder up again. Again a cover. Again the outside leg hooked in again a kick out. Ruthless aggression. There it is. A cover again and Angle kicks out a third time. Ruthless aggression, tenacity by John Cena. That's wins matches. Cena has countered the ankle lock. He has countered the ankle slam. Into the corner. Oh! And Kurt Angle sends her first into the steel post. Oh, oh, oh. He could have him here. Does he have oh, no. Once again. Small package. The small package. He's got him. And Angle again kicks out. John Cena giving Kurt Angle all he can handle and then some. What the hell of a match this is? Reversal, Angle whipped across the ring. Slammed by Cena. Hook his leg. Again a cover. He's got it this time at Angle. Angle just, just got the shoulder up. Comes again. He's got it. Ah, oh, Angle again got the shoulder up. What does Cena have to do to keep Angle down? He's got to pin him. Look at that snap down. Double chicken with Linus Kurt floating over. Shoulders are pinned and Kurt Angle has pinned John Cena. It was a messed up week in pro wrestling. It was messed up as a fan of Hulk Hogan. It was messed up as a fan of Roddy Piper. It was messed up as a fan for Sean O'Hare. A lot of people always forget to include Sean O'Hare in this little discussion. Now, best way I could describe this is Hulk Hogan at the time was doing the Mr. America character on WWE television. Fortunately, Hulk Hogan had some type of a contract dispute with Vince McMahon and WWE. Some people have said over the years it had to do with the WrestleMania payoff, had to do with a few things in his contract. So it was this week in 03 that Hulk Hogan went on Bubba the Love Sponge, his radio show, and announced that Mr. America was on hiatus, that he was done with WWE at that time because of what he said was his creative direction, but it really had to do more with contract. WWE decides to take it one step further. They did a skit on TV. I remember it. Vince McMahon showing footage after SmackDown went off the air, I believe. 
that Hulk Hogan kept lifting the Mr. America mask up to reveal that he was Hulk Hogan. So Vince revealed on TV that Hogan was Mr. America, which we obviously all knew. But because he revealed his face, Hulk Hogan was fired by Vince McMahon. So that's how it went down. So Hulk Hogan was done. This was also the same week where we had Zach Allen defeat Big Show to win the WWE contract. And I still remember the dark match that took place as well. You know, it was just so... Look, Zach Allen having one leg and being able to, you know, make it is inspirational times a million. It is a wonderful inspirational story. I've always said, going back at that time to my hotline days, that I never liked Zach Allen in wrestling for two reasons. One, I thought it was always a tremendous insurance risk, a massive insurance risk. Number two, as far as suspension of disbelief, all he had to do was hook his leg. He can't kick out. He has no other leg to kick out. So all you got to do is just hook the hook the other leg and you know lock your fingers together. That's it. Anybody in storyline, he would not be able to kick out. There's no way. It's not physically possible. So I just never got into the Zach Allen character. But, you know, it was what it was. And again, it was very inspirational. But still, I just never got around to enjoy it at all. But putting that aside and putting Hogan aside, being done with WWE, Roddy Piper was also uh, done with WWE this week. And at this time, he was paired up with Sean O'Hare. And Sean O'Hare had a lot of promise. A lot of people felt that the devil's advocate gimmick that he was doing, this is not something you already know, you know, telling you it's okay to do this. It's all right to do this. You know, just being like the devil, tempting you. It was really ahead of its time. And Roddy Piper pairing up with Sean O'Hare, originally it didn't feel like it made sense but then it just clicked and it really felt like Sean O'Hare was getting uh, a nice little rub from Roddy Piper. But because Roddy Piper was abruptly released from WWE, Sean O'Hare's character was never the same. Now, Sean O'Hare is no longer with us in no way, shape or form. Am I trying to insinuate that him leaving WWE is the reason why he's no longer with us? We know there's, there was substance abuse There was depression. He had problems with the law. We'll never know the precise reason why things ended up the way they did. But Roddy Piper being released, I thought, really, really hurt the career of Sean O'Hare. Now, does anybody out there remember why Roddy Piper was released? I'm going to share with you right now uh, another audio clip. And this one runs 11 minutes. And it is far just Roddy Piper. Little tease the beginning of this episode, Vince McMahon being interviewed, getting very, very angry angry with a reporter, knocking papers out of his hand. You know, Vince had a very short fuse, you know, going back these years. But Roddy Piper's release all took place because of an HBO special with Real Sports with Brian Gumble. That was the name of the show. They did an episode about wrestling deaths. This was the infamous episode where Del Wilkes, the Patriot, revealed that he took 100 painkillers a day. I think it's obviously a little bit exaggerated, but still, Del Wilkes had a massive pain pill addiction. Yet other wrestlers talking about problems and tragic deaths in wrestling. This piece was very, very controversial at the time. 
and Roddy Piper's comments on this show uh, was very, very controversial as well. Now, before I share the episode from Real Sports with Brian Gumble, when WWE released him a couple of days later, WWE issued this statement, and I quote, Since March 31st, 2003, WWE and Roderick Toombs, a.k.a. Roddy Piper, have attempted to negotiate the terms of an arrangement for Roddy to appear on WWE programming through August of this year. The parties have been unable to reach a mutually acceptable agreement. On Tuesday, June 24th, Roddy Piper appeared on HBO and revealed disturbing facts about his own personal drug use. Roddy Piper stated that he used drugs for many years while working in professional wrestling and that he does not like the person that he becomes when he actively performs as a pro wrestler. In view of WWE's inability to reach an agreement on a contract and to assist Piper from engaging in any self-destructive behavior, the WWE is ending any further discussion with Piper regarding a contract. WWE sincerely hopes for Piper and his family that Roddy can find happiness. So basically, once this special aired, WWE's like, fuck you, you ain't with us no more. So that's how it went down. And here is, going back to 2003, HBO's Real Sports with Brian Gumbel talking about deaths in pro wrestling. More spectacle than sport and more con than competition, there would seem to be little about pro wrestling that could or even should be taken seriously. But there is one deadly serious aspect that merits attention, and that is that wrestlers have been dying young at a rate that is 400% higher than normal. Armin Katayan has a look at a disturbing reality that is quietly stalking those inside the ropes. This is professional wrestler Louis Spicoli in 1995 on the road for the World Wrestling Federation. Apparently, after a few too many prescription pills, the dazed and confused Spicoli couldn't find his hotel room. Two years later, Spicoli would be dead of a suspected overdose from those same pills mixed with alcohol. He was 27 years old. And Spicoli is hardly alone. In fact, since 1997, more than 60 professional wrestlers from federations around the world have died, aged 45 and under, dead from drug overdoses, heart attacks, car accidents, suicides, and everything in between, at a rate 400% higher than normal, claiming a veritable who's who of the ring. Mr. Perfect, Kurt Hennig, Ravishing Rick Rude, Davy Boy Smith, and flying Brian Pillman. Everybody's dead. They're all dying early. And nobody cares about it. For some 30 years, Rowdy Roddy Piper made his living as pro wrestling's most notorious villain. Now, three years into semi-retirement, Piper says he wrestles almost daily with these deaths, with the fact that 49, he's outlived more than 30 of his closest friends. Roddy, why are all these people dying? All your friends, all these professional wrestlers? They take them and they screw them up so much. And they, they being the rash of promoters that I've gone through in the 33 years, I remember doing 90 one night stands. And, uh, you know. 90? Yeah, 90 in a row. I don't think people understand, at least I didn't, 
just how much pain is involved in this. I broke uh, my right foot five places, my left foot three places. My right hip has been titanium since December of 94. It just yeah. ride you till you drop? Yeah, like from a promoter standpoint, I guess they think, why not? In the last year, Real Sports has talked to more than a dozen current or former pro wrestlers who echo Piper's tune. Many contend when wrestling exploded in the mid-1980s, an endless cycle skyrocketed right along with it. Travel, steroids, pain, pills, and partying. I went to the ring every night uh, the last probably you know six years of my career, jacked up on pills, if not coke. By 1998, when Del Wilkes ended his 11-year run as the all-American superhero, the Patriot, he says he was a full-fledged junkie, hooked on the life. At your peak, how many pain pills a day? Uh, a hundred. A hundred a, hundred a day. Yes, sir. At the time, I thought it was perfectly normal because everyone else around me was doing it. And I say everyone else, most of the other guys around me were doing it. How many guys are we talking about? Uh, if there were ten guys sitting in a dressing room, I would say seven or eight were probably living the same way. On that roller coaster? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Alcohol, coke, steroids, pills. Yeah. They had a uh, tuinols, secondols, Tylenol 4, uh, Decadroblin, Testosterone, uh, Placidils, um, Valium. You get this going and then you start drinking alcohol. Deadly combination. You bring cocaine into the, into the picture. Somebody gives him an eight ball of coke. Way it goes, okay, I'm up, I'm eating. Okay, well, there's my buddies, and I'll have some drinks, and holy cow, it's four o'clock, what time's your plane? Seven, when do you need to get up? 5.30, oh. Does a line, gets on the plane. It's time to fight, no downers there. You know, let's go, but it would be nice to have a little painkiller in you as you go in, or a lot, and home. So now you come out of the ring, it's 10.30 and you're, hi, how are you? You know, now what do you want to do? And phew, just do the cycle again. How long did you live like this, Rod? Uh, 20 years. You ran this cycle for 20 years? Non-stop. Non-stop. But as easy as it seems to blame the drugs alone, Piper, Wilkes, and others insist you need to look beyond the official cause of death to see a trend, what doctors never saw. A business with no union, no health benefits, and little job security. There's a, a definite uh, connection there between the lifestyle, between what's expected of the guys, the lifestyle, and uh, you fall prey to it. Many hotel rooms, I have just sat there, and uh, I call it the silent scream. It's just, uh, I don't know why, you just sit there and tears will just come down, and you just sit there, and like, fucking hours, man. I'm so, excuse me, hours. Uh, because there's no, there's no answer. There's, there, there's no place to turn. And, and when you do turn, who, who cares? You're just a dumb professional wrestler. But to their screaming legions of fans, these guys seem larger than life. Equal parts rock star, athlete, and circus performer. In searching for answers today, Piper and others point to a slew of promoters who they say turned a blind eye to abuse while pushing wrestlers harder and harder. Vince McMahon was the owner of the World Wrestling Federation, one of the biggest organizations back then. If you can't cut it, get out. 
What's wrong with that? No different than any other business, by the way. You know, if for some reason you have to rely on drugs, illegal drug usage to make it, boy, you're going to self-destruct. Fifteen of the 60-plus wrestlers who have died worked at one time or another for McMahon's organization, ranging from talent being developed to bona fide stars on contract. Many of those, as a matter of full disclosure, also wrestled for the now-defunct WCW, then owned by Time Warner, HBO's parent company. The wrestlers Real Sports contacted say both companies fostered an environment where bigger is better and anything goes. It was more of a Wild West show back in the 80s, no doubt about that. You know, and I think that you know, in terms of illegal drug usage, in terms of cocaine, there was quite a bit of that that, that, that went on. Um, again, I don't throw any stones. I was a part of that whole scene myself. In retrospect, how much do you attribute that lifestyle in the 80s to the deaths that we're seeing today and have seen since 97? Um, I, think, I think that um, that that lifestyle back in the 80s could partially be attributable to the way people uh, are acting uh, today. Again, most of us, the smart ones, obviously grew up and grew out of those habits. But certainly in all the entertainment business, it was the Wild West. A lot of individuals, unfortunately, passed away as a result of that. We asked McMahon about a few of the biggest names in the business who worked for his and other organizations. Do you have a reason why these people would be dying under the age of 45? Why don't you ask yourself that question? I mean, why, why, why are you indicating that's my responsibility? These people are dead because... I'm asking you if it's in any way, shape, or form falls on your shoulders. I, I would accept no responsibility whatsoever for their untimely deaths. None whatsoever. As far as... And you've got that little look on your face like, yeah, I'm, geez, I'm, Vince, I'm, how none, can you none, say that? Well, but none whatsoever. I mean, they wrestled gave, for you. They, they were part of they, your organization. They worked a, a couple of hundred nights a year for you. Oh they live this oh, lifestyle. Oh my God, you can't, you can't believe. Oh, can you see that look? I mean, oh, how can you possibly say that, Vince? How can you look that way and you're giving me the old sympathetic stuff? No, I'm not. Stuff? I'm, I'm, I'm honestly curious. Because I told you, these individuals worked for our organization at one time. They also worked for other organizations. I'm not responsible for the way the business was then. I wasn't responsible for the way the business, how they grow up in the, grew up in the business, and whatever personal bad habits they developed. Why am I responsible for that? I gave them the opportunity. Well, you ran it. I, I ran one. I ran it. one organization. You controlled the biggest organization. I don't think we were the biggest at that time, quite frankly. Okay, we we're the sole surviving organization now. But as far as looking back on all of this, these individuals developed a lot of bad habits. That's not that's not my responsibility. Certainly, no one blames McMahon or any other organization for these deaths. Indeed, McMahon says he took steps to curb the abusers he was aware of, either by sending them to rehab or firing them. And what about the next generation of stars, up-and-comers like Teddy Hart? It's important to look good and try to get the look that the fans are used to seeing, especially if my job is be the future rock or something like that. Hart and his cousin, Harry Smith, are paying their dues on a small wrestling circuit in western Canada. While both say using steroids or other drugs is not part of their routine, the pressure to look big, to take it to the next level, is huge. And they look amazing. I'd like to look the same as them. So probably if I can't get the results I need doing what I do, then I'd probably have to take it to the next level. It's about as much as I could say there. You understand what I mean. Such is the life. One, it appears, both Ted and Harry know all too well. Almost exactly a year ago, Ted's uncle, Harry's father, 
Davy Boy Smith died of an apparent heart attack. He was 39. Wrestling is, it has a tremendous entrance plan. You come in as, boy, here you are, you rock and roll and everything is wonderful. It's got no exit plan. And Rowdy Roddy Piper should know. A few months ago, he climbed back into the ring. What, what would you have me do at 49 when I, my pension plan I can't take out till I'm 65? I'm not going to make 65. It's just face facts, guys. And while Piper has returned to a game that says it has cleaned up its act, the fast times that claim Spicoli and so many others remain etched in the minds of those who, to some degree, have survived life in pro wrestling. I hate it. I don't watch myself on TV. Uh, I hate that guy. Because I know what that guy's thinking. I know what that guy's capable of doing. I know what he's thought of. And there's nothing nice about that guy at all. That guy being you. That guy being Roddy Piper. Wrapping up 2003, Gail Kim makes her WWE debut. And in her debut match, Women's Battle Royal, she wins the Battle Royal and wins the Women's Championship. Now, you know, we know it's obvious. Gail Kim is one of the greatest wrestlers of our generation as far as women go. Back in 2003, though, she didn't have that storied career. And I remember a lot of people criticizing her for winning the championship on her first night out. You know, common sense, it's not her fault. It was WWE that made that decision. But uh, I think she's pretty much earned her stripes over the years. And yes, as I said before, one of the greatest to put on the boots as far as women's wrestling in our generation. 2004, Kota Ibushi makes his pro wrestling debut. He debuts for the DDT promotion in Korokan Hall in Tokyo, Japan, under the name Kota Ibushi. He loses in his debut match against Kudo. 2004 as well, we had uh, the WWE present the Great American Bash. Some people have called it one of the worst pay-per-views that WWE has done in the last 20 years plus. It was terrible. I mean, some of the matches I didn't think was all that bad. JBL versus Eddie Guerrero in a Texas Bull Row match was, I thought, pretty good. I think people were more upset that JBL uh, getting the heavyweight championship such a short time after having the goose step incident in Germany and him being five of CNBC felt like he was being rewarded for the behavior. Because remember, WWE had taken the original apology off their website shortly after they put it up. And a lot of people, including myself, was not happy with JBL at all at this time. Looking back on it, JBL trying to just be a heel character, took it a little too far. Totally understand that. And, you know, I look back on it now and I feel JBL definitely deserved to be a heavyweight champion at this time. So that went down. Also at the bash, Sable defeated Tori Wilson. This was Sable's final appearance on WWE pay-per-view. She would be gone from WWE only a couple of weeks later. We will cover it when it takes place. And who could ever forget uh, <laughs> what we played at the beginning of the show? I'm not playing it again. There's no need to. Undertaker defeating the Dudleys in a concrete crypt handicap match. And if you don't know why there were two audio clips of Paul Bearer and The Undertaker at the beginning of this show, that's because, and I will never forget it, they somehow got footage leaked out. 
Somebody leaked footage to the internet in 2004, earlier in the day. Undertaker practicing the segment with Paul Bearer. If you listen to Paul Bearer's voice, especially in the both clips, they're identical. Because Paul Bearer, they filmed the segment of him being buried in concrete alive. They filmed that earlier in the day. The people live in attendance in the Great American Bash, all they saw was an empty crypt with cement. They could not see Paul Bearer. They did it in a way that the fans, no matter how they tried, they couldn't see the crypt perfectly clear. So on the monitor, they saw the footage that was recorded earlier in the day. But the actual crypt, live and in person, had no Paul Bearer in it. So here you are, earlier in the day, this footage leaks out. It leaked out the day of the pay-per-view. All right. Obviously, it didn't air the next day or a week later. It aired hours before the pay-per-view. So we all see this online. Save me. Oh, yes. You could save me now. And we're seeing this and Undertaker going through the motions. I mean, look, we know that this is entertainment. But to see the actual skit, everybody's like, what the fuck are we watching? And then if you listen to the crowd, when they did this on the pay-per-view, crowd was not into it either. It was stupid. It was hokey. It was the write-off Paul Barrow off TV. You know, if you look at you know, suspension of disbelief, Undertaker, quote-unquote, killed Paul Barrow, but it was not good. So what you heard at the beginning was the original practice that they did earlier in the day and then how it went down on TV. 2005, almost two years to the day that Hulk Hogan was gone from WWE after the Mr. Mr. America debacle. He made his return, surprise return. How it went down, there was an episode of Raw this week in 05. Six-man tag main event was announced. Christian, Chris Jericho, and Tomko versus John Cena, Shawn Michaels, and a partner. We didn't know who the partner was. Shawn Michaels during Raw told Cena, I got it taken care of, don't worry about it. And when it came to main event time, John, uh, John Cena was surprised, and we all were as well. Shawn Michaels brought out Hulk Hogan. They won the match. After the match is over, all three of them opposing. I remember Shawn Michaels having Hogan's do-rag on, and everything was cool in the gang. And if you remember the Shawn Michaels-Hulk Hogan feud, you know, Shawn Michaels overselling and stuff like that, you know, we'll be discussing that in upcoming weeks. It happens very, very soon. But it all started this week in 05. Another match that took place that night. In fact, I can arguably say this episode of Raw in 05 is one of those episodes that you watch it from beginning to end and you like legends and old school and a mix of today and yesterday. Watch that entire episode. You will really enjoy it. Not to mention, I mean, we also had the Divas search that night. And there was some very, very revealing outfits. I remember Viscera in the ring as well. This was a really fun episode. There was a match that took place on the card that night that nobody ever really ever talks about. Ric Flair versus Kurt Angle. It went almost 15 minutes. The match was phenomenal for the late career of Ric Flair. It was fun. And I'm just going to share... You know, it's nothing major, but I want to just share a little promo back and forth that Ric Flair and Kurt Angle had earlier in the night that set up the match between the two later on. I play it because I'm sure we always love a good Ric Flair promo, 
But you mix in a little bit of Kurt Angle as well and a little exchange that they had. I thought it was a lot of fun. Go out of your way. If you want to go watch some vintage Raw, go check out Kurt Angle versus Ric Flair this week at 2005. I've beaten everyone in this business that there is to beat. I am the man around here. And there's not a person alive that can say otherwise. So, Batista, I want you to come out. What the hell? Whoa! Kurt Angle looking on in disbelief. It's nature! The nature boy, Ric Flair. Styling and profiling. Well, this obviously is not what Kurt Angle had on his mind. Oh, it doesn't appear that Kurt Angle is... He's too happy to see the Nature Boy. Well, obviously, Kurt Angle wanted to see Batista, not Ric Flair. But I'm always happy to see the Nature. You know that, Gene. Oh, yeah. Nobody is smoother. I love the strut. I love everything about the styling and profiling of Ric Flair. Rick, what the hell are you doing out here? What, Triple H is gonna come down here, babble for 20 minutes, and you're gonna stand behind him and smile? What's the deal, what the hell are you out here for? The deal is, Kurt Angle, I wanna shake your hand. I wanna shake your hand. I came out here, because I want to reinforce every word you've just said. Did you read my book, man? You stay healthy, you can be the greatest of all time. Coming from me, brother, that's a big-time compliment. You're an Olympic gold medalist. Hell, my son is a great amateur wrestler. I want my son to grow up and be like you, not me. Yeah, I would like my son to be as good as you are. Okay? As a matter of fact, I'm going to say something the whole world, I hate saying this. I'm a mark for you, Kurt Angle. I'm a mark. Yeah, I think you're that good. You've gotten so great, so fast, so quick. It's unbelievable. But... Saying you're the man, nah, I don't think so. I still gotta go with Triple H. Yeah, yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. I know where this is going. Triple H, I know what you're trying to do, Rick. You're trying to come out here, get Triple H a rematch with Batista. Well, guess what? Batista beat him three times. One, two, three strikes, you're out. Actually, I don't have to talk for Triple H. He's the greatest source alive today. The reason he's not here, you know why. Hell in the Cell last night, one of the greatest matches ever. He's got 30 stitches, spine busted on steel stairs, cracked rib, 
He's physically and emotionally unable to be here tonight. But let me assure you of this. He and Batista categorized themselves last night as great. Uh, Rick, you're looking at great. You're looking at the best in the business. So why don't you do yourself a favor? Why don't you take yourself to the back, drink your insure, take a nap, and get out of this ring before you get hurt. Have you ever crashed in an airplane? That's what I call getting hurt. <laughs> and let me tell you something else. You had a great match last night with HBK. Got two of the greatest of all time. It was phenomenal. But you shoot on me, high crotch, low single, fireman's carry, I'm going to put my finger through your eye. And if you put a hold on me, I can't come out of I'm going to bite your finger off. And you know what? If you're as tough as I think you are, and this don't hurt, I'm going to grab you by the testicles. And I'm going to pull. Yeah. I'm going to hurt you if you screw with me. All right, all right. You've proven that you're the dirtiest player in the game. Yes, I get right. it, Rick, okay? Yeah. I get it. Forget about it. I love the theory of being called the man. The one thing you can never take away from me is being the dirtiest player in the game. I'll tell you what, I've heard enough, okay? I tried to be nice, but if you're not careful, I'm going to go back to Eric Bischoff, and I'm going to ask him for a match against you. And that's something Ric Flair I don't care what you've done in your life, you do not want. Eric Bischoff, hell, this McMahon is sitting home right now, drooling. It's Kurt Angle, it's Ric Flair, whoa, whoa, it's Raw. Oh, 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 I see what you want. You want it, you got it. For the first time ever, one-on-one -on -one right here tonight. It's gonna be Kurt Angle versus the Nature Boy, Rick Flair! Woo! Alicia Fox makes her pro wrestling debut. Her debut was this week in 2006 as a referee. She actually performed as a referee in OVW. She refed a match between ODB, yes, that ODB, and Shelly Martinez. Her actual in-ring debut didn't take place until September of 2006, so I'm sure we'll definitely cover it at that time, but her official debut in wrestling was this week in 06 as a referee. 2008, 
little skirmish in the ring between Batista and Edge. It was not a match. Edge was out there cutting a promo. Batista hits the ring, lands a Batista bomb onto Edge, which then proceeds to have CM Punk cash in his Money in a Bank briefcase to win the World Heavyweight Championship. 2009, some legal news that happened this week. First off, Grandmaster Sex A, Brian Christopher, Brian Lawler. He was arrested and charged with public intoxication in Tennessee. He fell outside a convenience store early, early, early Saturday morning. Um, Then he entered the establishment. Authorities showed up. He started screaming at cops, threatened one of the officers, and they brought him in. And it's sad to see how many times he's been arrested over the years. I mean, you wish nothing but the best for the guy. But uh, I even think recently he was arrested again. We've covered a couple of times already doing episodes this year of uh, him being arrested. And also wrapping up 2009, XPW owner Rob Zakari, a.k.a. Rob Black and his wife, Janet Romano, as we knew as Lizzie Borden, they were sentenced to one year and one day in federal prison, two years of supervised probation, and this all stemmed um, after they pled guilty to one count of conspiracy to distribute obscene materials. I tell you, you know, I mean, any longtime listener knows I worked for XBW in 2002. I did a lot of work behind the scenes for this stuff in Philly, getting fans there, promoting it, you know, some other things, you know, driving hours just to deliver tapes to the cable company that used to air XBW in Philly. We used to drive all the way from New York. I used to tell Slash, why don't we just overnight it? Why don't we pay a courier? No, 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 we got to drive it there. We always drove from fucking Long Island to Philly every week to drop off videotapes. A lot of people don't know that. But um, in 2002, you know, apparently they did a porn video where it was simulated rape. I mean, you know, I know Rob Black really wanted XPW to do well in the, in the Northeast. And, you know, there were other people that were involved behind the scene as well. And I can honestly tell you that a lot of people worked their ass off to make it work. And they just had a lot of people, you know, other feds, wrestling websites, people that lived there that just did everything they possibly could to knock them out of business. But we thought that XPW, if they were going to lose Philly and the Northeast, it would be because of, you know, these websites and people and, you know, just trying to just just force them out of the neighborhood. Never in a million years did we ever think that there would be, a you know, a, some type of a disaster where they would sell a videotape to somebody in Pittsburgh and the tape was simulated rape. It wasn't real rape, but... Oh, man, it was just a real, just stupid move. And I think looking back on it, Rob Black would also agree it was a stupid move. And uh, I think the feds really had it out for Rob Black at the time. I mean, it was fucked up. There's no other way to put it. But still, I mean, the way everything went down, I mean, it's just, it's sad. It really is. And wrapping up 2009, Sheamus makes his WWE debut. Happened on the ECW show, WWE's ECW show. He wrestled Oliver John. I remember he cut a promo at the beginning that was kind of eh. 
but he wasn't polished at that time. So I don't think anybody had a problem with it. Uh, decent match, very quick, but still, nonetheless, you know, it's pretty interesting to go back and look at it. 2009, Sheamus's debut in WWE. 2010, anybody remember, you know, they were doing NXT at the time and they were doing these little challenges and we had... Uh, um, Matt Stryker introducing like Titus O'Neil and Husky Harris and others. Well, it was this week in 2010. One of the challenges that we saw on television was the NXT keg carry challenge. And the reason why I mention this is because everybody in recent time now will always remember Titus O'Neil for tripping, coming out to the ring for the greatest Royal Rumble event that took place in, uh, Saudi Arabia, greatest battle war, whatever the fuck it was. I didn't see it. I, I've seen the trip, seen around the world a thousand times. But I think some people may not be aware that Titus O'Neil, back in 2010, had a faux pas around ringside as well. He picked up the keg, was supposed to walk it around the ringside area within a certain amount of time, and within three seconds, he dropped it and tripped. And uh, his promo after uh, was not good. I remember him saying something like, that should tell everyone, don't drink and drive. Huh? <laughs> Wasn't good. But if you want, you know, see a little funny clip, if you've never seen it before, go seek it out. 2011, WWE presented Raw Roulette 5, special edition of Raw from Las Vegas, Nevada. R-Truth, in the main event, defeated John Cena in a tables match. Had some interference by CM Punk. And you might remember last week's show, we talked about CM Punk cutting a promo on TV that his contract was coming up with WWE and that he was going to win the WWF title and he was going to leave WWE with the heavyweight title. That took place last week in 2011. Well, one week later now, we have Raw Roulette 5. Main event, again, R-Truth defeating John Cena in a tables match. CM Punk came out and interfered. And with John Cena laid out in the middle of the ring. CM Punk starts walking to the back, has a microphone in hand, basically sits along the rampway and cuts, you know, the pipe bomb heard around the world. John Cena, while you, you lay there, hopefully as uncomfortable as you possibly can be, I want you to listen to me. I want you to digest this because before I leave in three weeks, with your WWE Championship, I have a lot of things I want to get off my chest. I don't hate you, John. I don't even dislike you. I do like you. I like you a hell of a lot more than I like most people in the back. I hate this idea that you're the best. Because you're not. I'm the best. I'm the best in the world. There's one thing you're better at than I am, and that's kissing Vince McMahon's ass. You're as good as kissing Vince's ass as Hulk Hogan was. I don't know if you're as good as Dwayne, though. He's a pretty good ass kisser. Always was and still is. Oops, I'm breaking the fourth wall. 
I am the best wrestler in the world. I've been the best ever since day one when I walked into this company and I've been vilified and hated since that day because Paul Heyman saw something in me that nobody else wanted to admit. That's right, I'm a Paul Heyman guy. You know who else was a Paul Heyman guy? Brock Lesnar. And he split, just like I'm splitting, but the biggest difference between me and Brock is I'm going to leave with the WWE Championship. I've grabbed so many of Vincent K. McMahon's imaginary brass rings that it's finally dawned on me that they're just that. They're completely imaginary. And the only thing that's real is me and the fact that day in and day out for almost six years I have proved to everybody in the world that I am the best on this microphone, in that ring, even at commentary. Nobody can touch me. And yet, no, how many, no matter how many times I prove it, I'm not on your lovely little collector cups. I'm not on the cover of the program. I'm barely promoted. I don't get to be in movies. I'm certainly not on any crappy show on the USA Network. I'm not on the poster of WrestleMania. I'm not in the signature that's produced at the start of the show. I'm not on Conan O'Brien, I'm not on Jimmy Fallon, but the fact of the matter is I should be, and trust me, this isn't sour grapes, but the fact that Dwayne is in the main event of WrestleMania next year and I'm not makes me sick. Oh, hey, let, let me get something straight. Those of you who are cheering me right now, you are just the biggest part of me leaving as anything else. Because you're the ones that are sipping out of those collector cups right now. You're the ones that buy those programs that my face isn't on the cover of. And then at 5 in the morning at the airport, you try to shove it in my face so you can get an autograph and try to sell it on eBay because you're too lazy to go get a real job. I'm leaving with the WWE Championship on July 17th, and hell, who knows, maybe I'll go defend it in New Japan Pro Wrestling. Maybe I'll go back to Ring of Honor. Hey, Colt Cabana, how you doing? The reason I'm leaving is you people, because after I'm gone, you're still going to pour money into this company. I'm just a spoke on the wheel. The wheel's going to keep turning, and I understand that. But Vince McMahon's gonna make money despite himself. He's a millionaire who should be a billionaire. You know why he's not a billionaire? It's because he surrounds himself with glad-handing, nonsensical yes-men like John Laurinaitis, who's gonna tell him everything that he wants to hear. And I'd like to think that maybe this company will be better after Vince McMahon's dead, but the fact is, it's, it's gonna get taken over by his idiotic daughter and his doofus son-in-law and the rest of his stupid family. Let me tell you a personal story about Vince McMahon, all right? Can we do this whole bully camp?
telling you, we always talk about the summer of punk and Ring of Honor. I think it was the summer of punk in WWE 2011. Not good one year later to the day. TMZ had reported that CM Punk filed a restraining order against his estranged mother. He stated to the court that she tries to basically, I don't, I don't want to say embezzle money, but she tries to get money from him and she threatens to kill herself if he turns her down. And he basically filed these court documents uh, to you know keep her away from him. It's sad, man. You know, I know a lot of you out there are very close with your parents. I am very close with my mom. And to hear stuff like that, it is just a really sad thing to hear. It's a shame. It really is. No other way to put it. 2013, and I'm going to just say it. I wonder how many Jitgel rags came out that night just because of a nipple. Now, I was going to post it in the synopsis. Yes, I was going to put something over the nipple. We're not going to post nudity. But you know what? She's married to Daniel Bryan now. They have child. It was an embarrassing moment. If you really want to go seek it out, if you've never seen it before, by all means do so. More power to you. But I have to mention it because it happened this week in 2013. WWE was hyping up the debut of Total Divas. We had, uh, you know, Brie Bella, Nikki Bella, Eva Marie. We had other women in the ring that night. And uh, Nikki Bella decides to wear an outfit with no bra on. No pasties, no nothing. And towards the end of the segment, in clear view, high-definition television, you see one of Brie Bella's nipples. Big-time nip slip. And, yeah, it's just a nipple. I mean, yeah, look, us adults that are listening to this, thinking about it, yeah, it was a nipple. Still embarrassing, especially it's someone you see on TV wrestling or appearing. But if you've never seen it, trust me, there's a lot of places out there that have it. It was this week at 13 that Brie Bella had a very, very uh, revealing nip slip take place on TV. Wrapping up 2013, Ricardo Rodriguez, the manager of Alberto Del Rio, suspended 30 days, first violation of the WWE wellness policy. You want to stay on the uh, violating frame of mind 2014 it was this week in history that emma was fired and then rehired same day from wwe all started this week in 2014 emma was at a walmart in hartford connecticut she had an ipad case in her hands she claims that she forgot to ring it up because walmart has a lot of these self kit registers where you can ring your own stuff up. You put the money in, you get your receipt. You don't have to wait for you know someone to check you out. She claimed that she honestly and legitimately just had a brain cramp and forgot that, to pay for it. She was originally charged with six-degree larceny. She ended up sentenced to one-day community service or was ordered to take an online course, I think, about shoplifting, and the charges were dismissed. Her attorney insisted all along that she just forgot to pay it. WWE just jumping the fucking gun released her. You know, look, of course, you know, what happened in court happened later on. It didn't all happen the same day. But, you know, we've heard that she got arrested, charged with, you know, larceny. Then we found out it was a fucking iPad case. 
And then we found out that she legitimately forgot. And people were really, really hard on WWE, like, wow, you know, you're releasing her because of, of an iPad case? And, you know, people thought at the time that maybe WWE just used this as a way to get rid of her because they were doing big-time budget cuts at the time. I think, I don't know if it's next week that, if you know, they released a lot of people in history in 14, but I know there was an episode, a recent episode, where they released quite a few people. And... um they had other people around this time have an arrest as well. Jack Swagger had the DUI. Cameron was arrested. A few others were arrested. And they were just, you know, reprimanded. They weren't released. So people were really coming to the defense of Emma and WWE, you know, give them credit. They posted a statement saying, you know, they have to further evaluation. They reinstated her. Um, they said they were going to take appropriate uh, action for violating the law. But, um, you know, she ended up going, you know, further in NXT. And then, unfortunately, we had that debacle with her in the main roster. You know, the coming of Emma hyped up, and then all of a sudden, the leaving of Emma, and then she's now gone. But still, it was a memorable, odd moment in the career of Emma this week in 2014. And finally, for this week, 2015, just to give you an idea how short her wrestling career has been so far. Give her a lot of credit. This week in 2015, Liv Morgan makes her pro wrestling debut. She debuts for NXT in Citrus Springs, Florida, under the name Giona DiDio. She teamed up with Charlotte Flair to defeat Jesse McKay and Lena Fanin. And in case you didn't know, Jesse McKay, you now know her as Billy Kay. And Lena Fanin is the real name of Nia Jax. So there you go. Notable birthdays this week. Those celebrating birthdays who are no longer with us. Happy birthday to Ed Strangler Lewis, Dick the Bruiser, Boris Malenko, Abysmal Negro, Volano Number no. 1, Jackie Fargo, Red McIntyre, Mike LaBelle, Larry Sharp, Dean Detton, Percival A. Friend, Damian Steele, and Yukon Braxton. Happy birthday to all of you. God rest your souls. Happy birthday to J.J. Dillon and Johnny Saint. They turned 76. Terry Funk, 74. Wow. Duke Kinomuka and Leo Burke turned 70. Davey O'Hannon, 67. Frogman LeBlanc, 66. Danny Davis, 64. Bret Hart, 61. Damian Demento, Tom McGee, and Jimmy Ocean, 60. Brackett's 56, Charles Robinson, 54, Mike Tyson. He's done some in wrestling, so we got to include him. 52, Heidi Lee Morgan, 51, Koji Nakagawa, 49, Lady Apache and Amy Weber turn 48, Heidenreich turns 46, Scotty Tuhati, Joe Gomez, and Desire, I think from the Nitro Girls, turns 45, Matt Stryker turns 44, Ace Darling, 43, Ian Knox and Marco Colleone, 41, Suicide Kid turns 40, Scott Dawson, 34, Cody Rhodes, 33, Serena Deeb, Alicia Fox, and Michael Hayes turn 32. I know some of you right now are saying, wait a minute, Michael Hayes, 32. That's the Michael Hayes that wrestled for OVW that was trained by Eugene, Nick Dinsmore. Need to make that clear. Happy birthday, Sue Young. She turns 29, and Kimberly turns 28. Notable debuts this week in history. Butcher Vashon debuted in 1955. Killer Khan in 1971. Lady Apache in 86. Piotrov in 84. 
Yeah, I know the date should have been reversed. Liz Mark Jr. in 91, Donovan Morgan in 96, Lowlife Larry Ramos, 1997, Koti Ibushi, 2004, Alicia Fox, 2006, and Liv Morgan, 2015. And finally, notable deaths this week, and I'm going to tell a little story about two of these deaths in a moment. Those who passed away this week in history, Carl Kowalski at 76, Buddy Rogers and Danny Bobick at 71, Smith Hart at 68, George Cannon at 62, Glow's Big Bad Mama at 61, Primo Canera at 59, Matt Bourne at 55, Uncle Elmer at 54, Steve King at 46, Mike DiBiase, 45, Junkyard Dog at 44, Matt Capitelli at 38, and La Parquita and Espetrito Jr. at 35. I want to just talk about those last two, La Parquita and Espetrito. I think that's how they pronounce their names. They both passed away at age 35. They actually were twins. They were midget brothers that wrestled in Mexico City. In fact, one of the brothers wrestled at the 1997 WWE Royal Rumble. He was in the midget tag team match. Remember the mini Vader, the mini Mankind? That match, believe it or not. How they died, if you do some searching online, it is massive how many places talked about their tragic deaths. It was tragic. New York papers. I mean, all across the United States and beyond. And it's sad how they died. They went to, I believe, an event in Mexico City. And they picked up two prostitutes. They went back to a hotel. And the prostitutes, one of them was 65 years old. And one of them was 44 years old. So these weren't like 19-year-old chicks they're picking up now. They picked up somebody 65 and somebody 44. So anyway, not only were they prostitutes, the two women, but they were robbers. They were looking to rob these guys. So I don't know if these guys picked up the girls or maybe the girls tried to pick them up. But anyway, these two midget wrestlers, they think they're going to get laid. They bring these two women back to the hotel room and the women drugged them and robbed them and killed them. And what the woman did not realize is that when you drug midgets, you can't use the same level dosage that you would use for regular sized adults. So they basically put some type of concoction mixed in with alcohol, knocked them out, sold, stole all their stuff. And because the level of drugs was so severe, they both died of overdoses, these guys. So they passed away at age 35. The women ended up getting 47 years in jail. And there's some very odd photos online of the funeral. Everybody there were dressed up in masks, their masks. And, you know, it was just a sad story, but you look at the funeral photos. It was just weird. I mean, I'm, I'm sure because of the, the, the mask and how important it is in Mexican wrestling, I'm sure that this is probably a normal celebration that they do. But talk about an odd story. Took place this week in history. They both died 35 years old. So I hope you enjoyed this edition of This Week in Wrestling History. I will be back next week with your next episode. Everyone enjoy the 4th of July. I will definitely be with family, and I hope you all take care. And please, as always, send me feedback. Tell me what you think, any suggestions. It's always welcome. Follow me on Twitter, at DonTonyD. The website, DonTony.com. Email me, DonTony at 
DonTony.com, Facebook.com slash DTKC Show. And as always, if you like what we do, you want to support the shows, help us keep these free for everyone, keep the bills paid, keep the lights on, consider our Patreon page. It is Patreon.com slash DonTony. For as little as five bucks, you sign up. We have giveaways there, pay-per-view predictions, contests, early releases of this show and others. Not only is does everybody there, they're the stockholders of what we do. I mean, they really reflect a lot of the way these shows are dictated. But we have exclusive podcasts there as well. Everybody that always wanted a Kevin Castle solo show, he's got hundreds of hours of content there. He's got uh, Castle Chronicles that, that's taped every other week. Plus... Every other week, yours truly and Anthony Missionary Thomas of Wrestling Soup, we do a show called Breakfast Soup. It's like a it's like a combination of Breakfast with Blasi and Wrestling Soup together. We have hundreds of hours of content there as well. It is all exclusive for Patreon, and we air those every other week as well. So please check it out. You'll support us more than you know. Patreon.com slash Don Tony. Everyone be well. I will talk to you all soon next week. And once again, have a great 4th of July holiday. Take care. New to Medicare? Start now. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about some of the top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. If you're thinking about a Medicare Advantage plan, MyHealthPolicy.com is a great place to go to find a plan that meets your needs. Learn more about your options. Even talk with a licensed insurance agent. MyHealthPolicy.com. New to Medicare? Go to MyHealthPolicy.com. With MyHealthPolicy.com, you can compare plans from some of the nation's top insurers. Start now to find a plan and apply online. MyHealthPolicy.com makes it easy to find a Medicare Advantage plan in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. My decision, my Medicare. MyHealthPolicy.com.